This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code GEEKY. The Incomparable, number 189, April 2014. Welcome back to the Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and we're going to talk about a movie, a classic movie. Uh, not an old movie. We're not going to call it old. I don't know what the cutoff is for old, but it precedes 1980. And this movie is from 1983, so we're not going to call it old, but it is a movie we, we think of, I believe, think of fondly. Um, it is John Badham's 1983 techno thriller, Cold War techno thriller, shall we say, War Games. And here to join uh, in talking about global thermonuclear war are my guests, David Lore. Hello. Hello. Good to have you. As always. John Syracuse is also here. Hi, John. Hi, Jason. I just want to say that I love the 80s. Yeah, they're <laughs> totally awesome. That's what I say. Uh, Greg Doss is here. Hi, Greg. Hi, Jason. Good to Would have you. Would like you like to play a game? Uh, how about a nice game of volleyball? <laughs> So not one of the options. Blip. Uh, <laughs> bloop. <laughs> not on the menu, Jason. Blip. Bloop. Bloop. Upbeat. You missed it. Sorry, too bad. And Andy Anatko is also here. Hi, Andy. Greetings, Professor Snell. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit more Dalek than I think you were going. <laughs> All right. So War Games. This is a movie. Um, I have... We all, I, I, did we all go back and watch it again? I watched it a couple days ago. I did. Yeah. All right. Um, was that all? Anybody <laughs> not watch it recently? Just checking. Okay. <laughs> I watched little bits of it. I didn't watch the whole thing. All right. I, I haven't seen this movie in so long, and yet I realized mm-hmm. as we were watching it that um, I have it completely memorized. So obviously I've seen it a dozen <laughs> times at least. Because I I remember details. I remember long stretches of dialogue, whole scenes worth of dialogue. (laughs) And yet it's been probably at least 10 or 15 years since I've seen it. So um, it was really kind of nice. It was uh, nice to come back to a familiar familiar friend in this movie. Um, When when did you – I mean, was this a movie that that you all saw within, you know (laughs) – when it came out or, or soon thereafter? Because I, I certainly did. I, I can't remember. I think I saw it in the movie theater in 82 or 83. 83. I remember dragging my parents to see it in the theater because it was uh, we had just moved up to New York and it came out and I went, that's what I want. And they said, all right, we've ripped you out of your happy, comfortable Florida life and let's go to a movie. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I loved it. I loved it. Although it, it, I, I still remember all of the technology. I was not in a very tech-heavy family. So just the, the idea of modems. What is this modem mm. thing? You know, Everything in the movie was you know, total science fiction. I, I was used to a TRS-80. That was about it. <laughs> I don't remember uh, not having seen this movie. So it was another one of those movies that I don't remember the first time I saw it. I don't remember a time before I saw it. Wow. It just has always been <laughs> in my life in the, in the vague haze and of my past and like like jason i hadn't seen it in so many years just i don't know how many years maybe yeah maybe 15 years 
Uh, but I knew I had this movie memorized. Like, even not having seen the movie, I felt like I could recite scenes from it. And seeing it again, yeah, I can continue. Except with, with some exceptions, I think we'll get to. There's big blank spots in this movie for me. Yeah. <laughs> Andy? Uh, I had not seen it in about a year and a half, two years. It's, it really is one of those movies where uh, if I have not seen it in a while, the next opportunity I have where I just – either the, the movie pops into my head or I see it like I'm just scrolling through Netflix and it's a recommended movie, chances are about 7 out of 10 I'm going to wind up seeing it because it's I, – I think I think it's kind of like our for, – for, for not just our generation but our sort of social group, this is like our version of The Graduate where it just so it's it so encapsulates us that this is us on that screen that is just hard to mm. relate to it in the same way that like people who are not of that generation and we're not doing those things at that age can relate to it. That's how I remember it. Yeah, I mean that that I'll I'll just say the the one thing that absolutely got my heart that just absolutely made me think this is this is me this is my group is when uh <laughs> is when he's trying to he, he's trying to hack into protovision and he's been up all night this isn't early and you, i can tell this isn't that he got up early to do this it means that it's seven in the morning he's been up since since seven the, the previous morning that expression where he's just <laughs> mashing his face with his hand with his fingers drawing his, his bottom eyelids down and just like looking at the screen in disbelief that i can't believe it i'm still gonna have to go for another two hours to try to solve this i have seen that face reflected in a green phosphor apple II monitor <laughs> night after night after night yeah greg you were gonna say you you same same deal well yeah i saw it in the theaters because it was the first movie that kind of spoke to the subculture i was in you know i knew people that had their bmx movies and people that had their breakdancing movies and <laughs> war games was a nerd movie i i, I will just say i i had no bmxers or breakdancers in my peer group i'll just say that <laughs> no but they were at the same school i was they they all they beat up on you borrowed the affectations of those subcultures <laughs> and i had a 2400 bob modem and a couple of phone numbers and i lived online and so, you know, to see somebody who was also war dialing and doing something interesting with it and who had a girlfriend who looked like Ali Sheedy was all very, very exciting. Yes. Well, especially that. <laughs> it's one of the more unrealistic things in the movie anyway. I think the key to this, the key to this movie uh, is for our, for our peer group is one for people our age, you know, having grown up in the 80s with sort of sort of the the dread of nuclear annihilation. I think everybody in our generation can connect with that. But then this movie specifically puts people like us in the position to accidentally destroy the war, destroy the world, or well, no, to to sort of, but to 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 be the hero of the story. Like right. we know there's this dread, you know, this existential dread of a nuclear holocaust, right? And here's a movie where people like us, or people like what we aspire to be, because I saw it, I was I was too young, I was I was sort of aspirational, like I would like to be like Matthew Broderick when I grow up and do that. We're the hero, and we get to save the world. That almost destroyed accidentally too, which is fun. But then be the hero and, and yeah. save it. And so it was the the one two punch of you know movies that speak to the fears kids have about the world ending, and then like the the super rare movie where it's like, and guess what? The nerds are going to save the day. And you know, and also by the way, the sub theme of using computers to impress girls, which yeah, it does not actually work <laughs> in real life the way it does in the movie. But hey, baby, check out my acoustic coupled modem. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so we should, uh, if there are no other uh, opening remarks, I thought we would dive into the movie and just kind of move through it sequentially. Does that sound okay with everybody? Very linear, very very methodical. That's the, go, the, go straight through Falcon's Maze. I'm sorry, go ahead. I am, I am, that's exactly right. <laughs> But we start, one of the, the nice things about this movie is it starts with a with a fake out, which is, hey, let's go see that movie, that computery movie I've heard so much about. And we open on a snowy plane in, you know, it's like South Dakota or, or Montana or somewhere for all we know. And uh, a car comes through the snow and enters a house. And then something strange happens. They look in a mirror and... And uh, and suddenly we're there. The, turns out they are ushered back into a secret government installation, where they are uh, m- manning the nuclear missile silo. Um, and uh, hey, it's John Spencer. Yeah, Leo McGarry never ages because he looks the same age in this movie as he did in The West Wing. It's like, how is that possible? Even uh, Matthew Broderick has started to look a little older. It is. It's Leo McGarry, except he's now been demoted, and or he hasn't yet been promoted, and he works <laughs> for the Air Force, I guess, uh, firing nuclear missiles. I had no memory of this opening scene, because when it opened, I was afraid that I had the wrong movie. Am I watching the <laughs> wrong movie? Because, like, as soon as they get into the thing with the keys, I remember that whole sequence. But the very opening sequence where it's snowy and trucks, I guess, when I was a kid, my brain didn't turn on until they get in there in the room with the keys. Yeah, but but they go everything. So one of the notes I wrote down is everything I know about nuclear missiles and all their protocols and how they work is from this movie. <laughs> and, and Hunt from Red October. Maybe Hunt for Red October a little bit and maybe like Crimson Tide. But really, it all comes back to there are two guys, there are two keys, and ultimately, yep. turn your key, sir. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. That's it. What about Dr. Strangelove? Oh, I didn't watch that until much later, and it was influenced entirely by (laughs) War Games. It was all through the War Games. It's all that John Spencer is down there in a hole somewhere with that other dude, and they're 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 going through the codes, and they've got the little book. And every movie I've seen since, I always think about the the, the, this scene, the little plastic snap and half things with the paper inside them. Right, and the whole the whole point of this scene is that, um, given every indication that they need to fire their missile. Um, John Spencer refuses to fire the missile. And we discover then when we cut to the government briefing that um, Maurice Minifield from Northern Exposure um, <laughs> is uh, this is a problem that lots of his guys won't fire the nuclear missiles. And so they just so they decide to replace them with computers. Well, it was only 22 percent or something, wasn't it? And like they, they, I think they call that like the the percentage of infantry soldiers who don't fire at the enemy. It's like the firing rate or something. Someone can look it up, but uh, that doesn't seem like such a bad percentage. I think the firing rate for it's it's a pretty damn bad percentage. I mean, uh, who has to be the poor guy who has to like explain to the guy who had the gun, say, "Sir, turn your key." That you just shot and killed Leo McGarry through a test fire exercise. It wasn't even really war. Well, they gave him blanks. They replaced the gun. It's got blanks. Sure, we don't. We don't ever. Well, because we see him later. It's, it's a crossover. <laughs> it's a crossover with the game. Yeah. So there's blanks. It's still a hell of a test, too. You walk into work one day and realize you have to yeah. annihilate the planet. That's the job. It's working for the government. That's exactly what you're going to get. Well, but, that, but that's part of that's part of the movie. Like the reason, uh, as a kid, that this works so well is you totally believe that there were people with this job, and and you understood that this is not a fiction. That there's that there's actual people whose job it is to go in there every day, and this is this is the job. This is what they're signed up to do, and like you would buy into the whole thing that like, well, they're supposed to do their job, but it's a hard job to do. And how do that you know like in as an adult watching this movie, lots of things seem very silly, but b- because I was the kid. 
in the 80s that saw this then like i can still connect back with the deadly seriousness of you know of of these vaguely silly things absolutely that's 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 another thing that i I wonder if later generations can really appreciate that. If you were a kid growing up in the 80s, every news report was, hi, uh, your president is an old, adult, former movie movie actor who really wants a nuclear war, who has a, who has aides who are telling them that, you know what, you should not let the Ruskies get away with anything, everything, anything, because if they, even if they do fire some missiles, we have a magical shield in the sky that will shoot those missiles down. So absolutely, build more nukes ramp up the war there's a probably about a seven and 80 chance that if you're a teenager you will wind up fighting in afghanistan or something it really was a t- it wasn't like the cold war in the in the in the 60s but it was still a really tense time and if you had a this is this is why one of the biggest tv shows uh, dramas at that time was just an entire night of abject depression saying after the nuclear war happens which is going to happen here is what's the what the day after that is going to be like for those of you who, by the way, who didn't live through it, Andy's referring to the Cosby Show. <laughs> those sweaters, <laughs> the, the sweaters, Jason, the sweaters. Multiple, multiple pattern inbound reentry vehicles. Yes. Um, so, uh, more, but the good news is, Dabney Coleman, TV's Dabney Coleman, has a plan to replace uh, all of the Leo McGarrys of the world who don't want to turn their key and annihilate everybody in you know hundreds of thousands of people in Russia with the Whopper. Which is a very silly name for a very powerful supercomputer that's going to uh, run military simulations, learn all of the details, and be able to plan based on the uh, NORAD um, war plans uh, faster than even the the chiefs of staff and the president. And so you just tell the Whopper what to do and it will fire the missiles for you. Isn't that nice? Computers always do whatever you want. Yeah, but let's put all of the nuclear missiles in the computer because computers. What what the, what they're saying here? What Dabney Coleman is saying here is computers are more reliable than people, and therefore we should take the human element out of the equation. Of course, there's a lot of things that are topsy turvy <laughs> in this movie, like just you know things that are different now because we're you know more progressive and like the the sexism and all the stuff that we'll talk about in a bit. But this was the first scene that struck me as being a scene that would not exist in a current movie because in this scene you have the computer guy advocating for the sort of more rigid militaristic everybody has to follow orders the computer can take over firing because we know it will fire every single time and you had the southern all-american four-star general in his dress uniform being the peacenik dove saying no we need the people in there we need men like in a modern movie, the military would be all for the killing machine thing, and the computer guys would be the doves and saying, you know, oh, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with killing people or whatever. It's totally upside down from the current view of what the guy, what the military guy, and what the computer guy are supposed to say, and that kind of runs throughout this movie. Everybody in their various roles is the opposite of what those roles would be today. I don't know. I don't think the military guy is so much the peacenik as he's the old fashioned, I believe in the judgment of my men. Well, yeah. What it gets to is that Ludditism trumps uh, militaristic, uh, you know, zeal. Like he is more afraid of computers than he is like, but you know, he's defending the weak link basically. Yeah, sure. The humans don't fire 22% of the time, but damn it. We have to stick with them because I don't want those darn computers coming in. So that's the thread of, 
his place in the movie is still to be backwards and everything, but not backwards in the way of like, I'm going to destroy everybody. I'm a crazy military, but backwards in the way of, I fear all technology to such a degree that I'm willing to stick with the people who are less reliable weapon rather than go with with those scary computers. Well, I think uh, John to jump off of that, the, um, this movie, in some ways, even though it was only made in 1982, and lots of movies were made before that, and lots of movies have been made after that, and yet, in some ways, this movie starts us on a path for – it predates some cliches, and it creates some cliches. And and so, it, it, watching it now, you're taken aback by the fact that some – like some movie and TV cliches about what the hackers always think and what the military guys always think are mixed up a little bit. And then there's also a bunch of things that people do that you're like, oh, I, you know, this, you know, I'm in is said many, many times in this movie. But it's like back then it was it was kind of OK. It's just now it's been overused. But back then they had to explain what was going on in a way that they don't right now. But but you're right. The uh, the idea that. Uh, Maurice Minifield from Northern Exposure, who has who has a name, but I don't care. He's always Mo- Maurice Minifield from <laughs> General Berenger. Is that is that no? Yes, General Berenger. Yes, thank you. Um, he he. Uh, yeah, he doesn't trust the computers because they're all. He, he trusts his guys. The problem is his guys are unreliable. So he's got this difficult decision to make where he's got the unreliable men, and then he's got the computer. But it, you know. But the, the experts say that it's really reliable. And when you're facing down nuclear annihilation, you want to be able to fire those missiles. I, I think it's more about each each leader under, uh, wanting to work with the tools that it understands the best, where the general understands discipline and understands military, uh, you know, military chain of command and understands people who are under his command. And so even though it's, he understands the possibility that their, that their people are not going to follow orders, that means that you need to increase the training. You need to change the way that these people are, are, are weeded out. Uh, whereas the person who's the engineer, the, the, there are there is a non-zero percentage of people out there of engineers out there who don't really understand people as well as they understand computers and they have more faith in computers than they have in people because at least when the computer fails to do something properly you can trace it to an actual fault as opposed to no the computer was just being a jerk today so i and then and not not even to get into the idea of each of these guys wants to defend their own budget you know, if you if you have all these silos staffed by men, then you actually need to have staff and training and facilities and support for them. He's defending his budget like a good like a good government employee and a good defense contractor uh, as a as as a computer engineer would do. Well, isn't the whole point of the movie to advocate for humanism? I mean, even Joshua becomes human effectively at the end. He develops a conscience and learns and. I mean, if viewed in the light of the 80s when everything, you know, computers were going to take over everything, but in a bad way, your job was going to be computerized away. Um, I, I think it speaks to that is that the, the good guy, the good authority figure, the, the one that is ultimately right, is the one who wants to keep men in. And the bad guy is the one who wants to remove human judgment. And the savior is the computer program that learns human judgment. No, I don't, I don't agree with any of that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's more. Those are all pieces in in the morality play, and especially once you throw like real AI into the mix, <laughs> which you know is is silly, and like, it takes you, it becomes a fantasy movie at that point. You realize that all these pieces on the board are there because there is some message that they're trying yeah. to get out, uh, and it involves these players on the board. But 
none of like because the military guy by the end of the movie i'm not i don't have a feeling that he was right or wrong he was the same as he always was he was just kind of along for the ride and and the same thing with uh what's his name mckittrick he he's he's trying to uh you know do what he does but he doesn't seem to grow or change much by the end of the movie either it's all just through this play of the ai interacting with this kid interacting with it you know falcon who does have a bit of an arc finally you know restoring his faith in humanity but we're just supposed to take away the lesson that you know nuclear war is stupid and we're all gonna die well but th- here's 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 the thing both dabney Co- well we use the, the actors because we, we we don't remember the, the characters names but dabney coleman and barry corbin they both have the exact same goal they both want that if, if an actual authorized and, and seconded order comes from the Oval Office to launch nuclear missiles, they all want that to happen. Yes. That's there. They simply have a difference that once those orders have to happen, what's the best way to implement that? At the end, they both having realized that having both realized that there are false orders in this computer, neither of them want the missiles to launch. And to the other point of Joshua acquiring a conscious, no, he doesn't. All he does is he is a computer. He's programmed to uh, p- part of the Whopper program is to work out once they have a, a goal has been loaded into the computer, figure out how to achieve that goal. He never says, oh, well, but it'd be wrong to kill so many people under the auspices of foreign policy. It says, no, I've tried out every single way to launch missiles at Russia in such a way that the response will not be absolutely devastating for the United States. I have worked them all out. None of them work. The only correct solution to win this game is to not to play at all. That's not a moral decision as far as Josh was concerned. That's just simply brute force computation. Well, and it's trying to shake the... uh the the military men out of the out of the uh pretending that there is something winnable here when in fact it's it's not and that even a computer even a logical computer can come to that conclusion if you just ask it to run the numbers which they never did i guess before not not to take this too far off the rails but andy are you arguing that you can't come to a moral decision based off rational calculations i'm arguing that there's no evidence in this movie that joshua came to a moral decision yeah, like what my connection to this movie as a kid was one part with the whole nuclear war thing and how that's a bad idea. Like I definitely took that yep. away from the, the movie, right? You know, so that, that's clear. But the other one was the the real like the real chilling connection with this inhuman AI. It was, you know, it was kind of how light because I don't think I'd seen 2001 before I saw this. Uh, like the, the part where where Matthew Broderick being the proxy for me as the, you know, the aspirational nerd in the audience is in in a terrible situation. Whose girlfriend is Ali Sheedy. Yeah, well, yeah. In, in a terrible situation and, you know, in McKittrick's office and uh, and he's typing on the terminal to Joshua or whatever. He says, is this real or is this a game? And and there's a, the good pause. There's such a great editing this movie with a little pause. And then Joshua says, what's the difference? That is a chilling moment with them zooming in on the screen. You realize, uh, I agree with Andy, the computer doesn't know or care it doesn't what's the difference in real and you know it has no connection to the outside world as far as it's concerned you know it's not concerned with any of the things that we're concerned with so it was it was strong ai in terms of like this thing appears to have a personality and thoughts and acts on its own and it is totally unfeeling and uncaring in an alien sort of way like hal and even though that's not really the point of the movie even though i think that's just there to move along the morality play and get the message out at the end Joshua is a is an incredibly chilling and creepy character, and that's my biggest connection to this movie is with the computer and with like <laughs> the kid who breaks into the computer and realizes he's face to face with the abyss basically at this point. Yeah, but that's the early Joshua, and then Joshua comes to a rational morality at the end of the movie. Well, if you define morality as he worked the numbers and found, I mean, it, it, it you may be arguing the same point. You can't you can't win a nuclear war, so so we need to not do that because. 
Yeah. So let's try a different game that you can win. But he doesn't. He doesn't make any distinction. You've 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 asked me to you have asked me to calculate a solution to the problem. How do I how do I win this war against the USSR? It calculated a solution, which is the only way to win this game is to not to play it. Not that there is no moral. Not that there's a moral imperative not to take human life. Not that mutual assured destruction was a bad foreign policy to begin with. But simply that you've asked me a question. The answer is forty two. Now it's up to you to figure out whether the question was was, was worth asking. The same as same as tic tac toe. He comes to the same conclusion as tic tac toe for for the same reasons. It's not because he cares about the X and the O's any more than he cares about the people. It's just that they, the the criteria the input is you win if if the people in the United States aren't dead. And he ran all the numbers and it didn't work out. See, I, I think it, it, it. But it's the dawning of his awareness. He is. You're right. He's totally cold and calculating earlier on. And the fact that I'm using a male pronoun to describe the computer program. He does not have a penis. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I wanted to draw a parallel between. Um, Joshua and and Falcon because in in that last and we're wait we're 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 gonna have to circle back around to the front of the movie but in that last <laughs> scene at the end um, Falcon is very peculiar if you watch that scene because he is sort of smiling the whole time like he knows how it's gonna play out and 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 when we first see him he's very fatalistic and thinks that you know humanity is gonna be made extinct and I. Watching it this time, I read that as Falcon knows how this computer is going to think, and it's going to, and it is going to do what it needs to do. And if that means blowing up all humanity, that's fine. So be it. He may even know that it's inevitable that it's going to do it, and that he's happy about that. And then when he's smiling, he's watching Matthew Broderick walk through this whole process. I think it's, I think he's going through th- this same process that he knows the computer is going through where um it's being flipped around and its orientation is changing into not playing the game after all so i i i saw a little parallel there that falcon knows what his computer is capable of at the beginning when he is uh convinced that humanity is going to destroy itself and then he's he knows exactly what is going to happen with Matthew Broderick figuring it out at the end. Cause he, he's not active really at all. He's just kind of hanging around and smiling and nodding. Like you'll figure it out. Well, he prods him in the right direction. And also, I mean, he, he, he does have the character where he decide he could have just gone up to bed after, you know, again, getting back to the movie, but he, he decides <laughs> instead of dialing his helicopter force up, and, he changed, yeah. he changes his mind. He decides to give humanity a chance through, you know, Matthew Broderick, which is his, you know, substitutes what my son would might've been if he had grown older. And with the correct prodding and instruction, he will figure out what this, the solution that he, you know, make him play tic-tac-toe basically. And he's the guy who manages. He's the, he's the guy who basically gives Matthew Broderick's character the, the pass to get into NORAD, saying, "Yeah, you, you don't don't shoot this guy, even though you think that he's the he's the Ruski spy who actually who set this whole thing off. I'm the guy who invented the system. I'm telling you, you got to you got to let him in." Yeah, yeah. So I, I wanted to. So so let's let's move let's move back to Galaga. <laughs> Matthew Broderick is playing Galaga in a. In a uh, in a in a video arcade, I had to explain that to my children. They were bothered by that. And and uh, and the the note I have here is just seeing Matthew Broderick from this period. I I com- you know connected it to Ferris Bueller's Day yeah. Off, and I thought this is like Ferris Bueller's The Day the Earth Stood Still. It's a strange combination. Ed of Rooney's going to sneak up behind him while he's playing the game. <laughs> yeah. Very strange. I felt bad when I saw him playing Galaga that it didn't look old to me. Everything in that scene looked contemporary. And I said, wait a second, this is supposed to look retro and old. They're like, no, it's just Galaga. What's wrong with you? 
That's one of the new games. Don't you understand? Look at those graphics. <laughs> and and uh, Ali Sheedy. We, you know, there's there's Ali Sheedy. Do we want to talk about Ali Sheedy? She's. I feel so bad about her in this movie. Poor Ali Sheedy. She has to be the manic pixie dumb girl throughout this whole movie. <laughs> I feel so like I did not see this the first time I saw the movie, and like they make her, they make her manic, they make her so dumb, and her her romance with Matthew Broderick is not believable in any way, and he doesn't even seem interested in her. And to truth be told, I was not interested in her when I first saw this movie because I wasn't old enough to be interested in her. And now that I see her, I'm like, oh, this part because she's a perfectly fine actress. We see her in things later, you know. But here, she's given nothing to do. She does not come off well, and I felt terrible for her the whole movie. Isn't she just the audience proxy to explain what's happening on the screen? Yeah, she fills that role, but do you have to make her seem so dumb to do it? I mean, they have the, like the, the useless scenes, like she's going up the stairs and the dad asks her a de- definition of a word. They make her not be able to read the word trajectory off the screen. It's like, come on, give her a break. Okay, that 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 was that one was kind of harsh, but it's good to in a movie like this, it's good to point out that Matthew Broderick's character is not socially normal, and his interests are not normal relative to the other kids who are in this movie. And also, I will say that uh, though I agree with you that th- you could have made her a little bit stronger and a little bit more together, uh, <laughs> and, there, and you could have deleted a couple of those lines that made her look kind of ditzy, but. I would much rather see that than see the mistake that is mo- that modern movies make in the opposite direction, which is to say, well, if we're casting a, a, a girl teen that's going to like be be with Matthew Broderick, she has to be every bit as good as Matthew Broderick. She has to know as much about computers. No, she will have to have been the person who invented the computer that Matthew Broderick is using. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, what if she's just maybe what if yeah. she's strong in her own way? She doesn't have to be the female version of the male lead, which I think I think is just as sexist. Time to take a break and talk to you about our sponsor, Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. You can get a free trial and 10% off by going to squarespace.com and using this special offer code, Geeky. Squarespace is constantly improving their platform. They've got new features, new designs, and better support all the time. Some beautiful web designs for you to start with. And then all the configurability and customizability you need to create a unique, beautiful website for you and your business. There are more than 20 highly customizable templates for you to start with. And Squarespace has won numerous design awards for those beautiful templates. It's very easy to use, but if you want some help, there's an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There are more than 70 people on that team. It's based in New York City. They are the Care Bear Lair. There are actual Care Bears in there. I hear, rumor has it, if you see one, the legend is that if you catch a Care Bear, it will grant you a wish. No, I think I'm thinking of a leprechaun. Anyway, many awards from the Care Bear Lair. So if you do need help, you can get it 24-7. Uh, it starts at $8 a month. What a deal. $8 a month. And if you sign up for a full year, that includes a free domain name. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style. So if somebody is coming from their smartphone or tablet or web browser, it doesn't matter. Your site's going to look great. And if you want to sell things on your website, Squarespace recently added e-commerce to the platform. So if you want to set up shop, sell stuff, you can do so just a few minutes. Even selling things on your own beautiful website is easy 
with Squarespace. So start a trial. No credit card required. This is a true free trial. You can start building your website today. And then when you do decide to sign up, we ask you to use the offer code geeky to get 10% off and show your support for the incomparable. So thank you so much to Squarespace for their support of the incomparable Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. The, the only thing that saves her is that her manic pixiness uh, it, it's as if she's lifted from a movie with a Manic Pixie dream girl, made the Manic Pixie dumb girl, and then the rest of the movie doesn't care because she doesn't <laughs> affect the other characters in the way that, that she's supposed to. She doesn't like they don't react to her. So she's allowed to sort of exist in a more naturalistic way as just kind of an excitable teenage girl without her mere presence being life changing to the dreary people who are, you know, you know what I mean? So there's mm. there's that relief from it. And she is not the woman who comes off at the worst in this movie, I think. Uh, it's just that like. I would have liked her to have – she had a little bit to do. I think the, the things that she had to do weren't focused enough. One was late, in the later scene, she's the one who realizes that the, the bond between a father and son is such that uh, the child's name might be the password. Matthew Broderick is not emotionally equipped to make that connection, so she does that. So she has a little bit more emotional intelligence than he does. And she you know, moves the plot along and acts as support for him, which is kind of a subordinate role, but it's it's better than just being manic all the time. But But in general, I felt like she was – not respected as much by the movie as I would have liked. And I agree with Andy, it would have been worse if she had to be the scientist that invented the computer because that is totally a modern thing. She's getting an A in English. We should, you know, <laughs> she is getting an A in English. She's not. They didn't make her bad in everything. She's getting an A in English. Well, they she's they not, gave her morals. She just don't change my grade, but she changed her mind the next day. This is what I was going to say is that that's a, po- that's a point where they missed an opportunity because I really like that scene where she says no and you get the sense of like, oh, well, you see, Matthew Broderick has no morals. He, if he, do, he's gonna, if, if he can use technology to do it, he will do it. And but then they back off of it where she comes and she says, yeah, change my grade anyway. <laughs> and, I, and I think she does that because she's supposed to be like, oh, well, she likes the boy. So she feels bad about snubbing him. And that's another sort of subordinate, oh, I'm sorry that expressing my feelings might have been offensive to the male. So I have to go back and be submissive and say it's okay. I didn't like that she changed her mind. And I didn't, I, I, I'm yeah. trying to figure out why they mm-hmm. made her change her mind. And it seemed to me she changed it because she wa- still wanted to have this friendship with or whatever with Matthew Broderick and she felt that she might have offended him by so strongly voicing her concern that the grade be changed. I didn't see that. The only reason she's there is to to borrow a phrase from another much much worse movie about tech stuff, The Net. Um <laughs> Dennis Miller. When when uh, they were doing the press for that and Dennis Miller is is like Sandra Bullock's friend in the movie and and he he did this interview where he explained that he was the expositional eunuch. And I love that phrase. And he said, he's there to explain things or have things explained to him because otherwise there's no reason for anyone to explain these things. You know, I mean, the audience needs to know them, but there's no logical reason. So she has to be an idiot so that everyone can explain, well, this is a modem and this is how you dial to other computers and this is how you do this and this is how you do that. And, but yeah, I kind of wish she were not quite so dumb well she, she could be ignorant being ignorant is fine right but being right. seeming to be not like <laughs> intelligent in areas that aren't related to computers is like adding insult to injury and is not necessary although i think they did a, a good job of when when there is no sort of expositional eunuch in the room for example again when uh when matthew broderick's up in in uh, mckittrick's office hacking away in the terminal because they left him alone in the room with the computer because they're dumb uh 
he reads aloud <laughs> everything that comes on the screen. Probably mostly just to, to make sure that the kids in the audience who can't read or can't read that fast are following along, but it also gives him a chance to act. And it, I mean, it kind of occurred to me this time around, but in general, I still think it sounded kind of naturalistic. He's reading the words on the screen out loud to himself uh, in a way that doesn't come off as like, oh, they're just doing that. So we in the audience, like it, it just seems to flow for me. Maybe it's because I've seen the movie a million times, but it, it just goes to show if there's no one there to uh, for expositional purposes, it's fine for the, the one person who's in the room to just read everything aloud as he reads it and types it. Well, she also she also gives him that emotional intelligence, which which we mentioned earlier, which I think is true. And also, very importantly, she gives him a ride later. So, <laughs> you know, she's like, "I'll pick you up." Uh, I surprise. I'm at the airport. I'll take you know. So. Would you see that in a modern movie? The male hero riding on the back of a moped with a female. I think that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's, a, that's a, where she jogs to his house as well. Those two scenes, I think, make her a more interesting character because. Again, I don't think that that we would allow the pretty girl love interest in a modern movie to be the driver of the moped. Or, but isn't doesn't that just try and I mean use her uh, to reinforce Matthew Broderick's nerddom? That this is uh, she, she she really I, I think she she really is playing the role of of, of Doctor Watson in this, where she is the he is she she is the person who says, "By Jove, Holmes, how did you determine that?" <laughs> and then expects, and then he's, and then he's also the one who has to be the the former military person who can ride a moped because you know Sherlock Holmes intellectually knows how to mo- how a moped works but doesn't know how to operate one. I I I, I do see where you're coming from with this uh, with this line, John. I just I just didn't see it. I, I didn't see it at all when as a kid. It's just, it's just the, seeing it as an adult now. So many of the things that are sort of retrograde, socially speaking, jump out at you, and and it's a strange mix again with her with her doing that. Like jogging to the house is the one that really blew my mind because again, I didn't remember that at all. Like that set. Would you have the you know the female lead in a movie? jog to the house of a boy she'd be all sweaty when she got there but she doesn't care this character doesn't care that she's all sweaty when she got there she ran there because she likes to run because running is fun like she's more of a tomboy and an interesting sort of well-rounded character whereas if you put you know if it's if it's megan fox if she's jogging to the house she's going to be in this cute jogging outfit and it's going to be all about like we're going out jogging she's just not gonna that's not going to be the way she transports herself to go over to the, the house of the boy that she's interested in it's silver linings playbook yeah that's better that's a good example and, you know that yeah. that is definitely not a stereotypical, you know, eighties romance type thing. I think it's I think it's more like she, she's the opposite of Matthew Broderick in every way, and the movie has to is always looking for opportunities to show that this is something that Matthew Broderick either can't do or has no interest in doing. All the way up to right. okay, that's no problem. The 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 the, the town that we missed last ferry, but it's only about about a half mile away. We'll just swim it. And like, what kind of a <laughs> blank blank is like fifteen years old and yeah. doesn't know how to swim? I, okay, I I thought there'd be time. Okay, well, I mean that that works out as a good scene there. Yeah, like you know, I think that works emotionally in terms of them realizing they're all going to die. But I think she's. I think her character is all over the place. And I think if you took out a few of the things that make her seem dumber, like I said, I we my wife and I had this conversation because she's got an A in English, and yet the, her interaction about the crossword puzzle is kind of bizarre. Like, we, you know, we no, she's a good student. In I I knew lots of people like that who were good in humanities and couldn't. I, I, a friend of mine in high school, you know, I knew her only from chemistry, and she said all I did in chemistry was take up oxygen. <laughs> that's that's all she did. But she was she was great at English. Guys, this is also this is thirty years ago, and they didn't know how women worked then. <laughs> Some of that is true. Although, well, Hollywood, Hollywood, yeah, that's right. And she is. It's hard for me to to 
objectively look at Ali Sheedy in this movie too, because she is constructed to be every computer nerd's fantasy of there's going to be this really cool girl and she's going to be interested <laughs> in learning about the stuff I like. She's going to jog over to the house. We're going to have a conversation. She's going to say some things about feelings, whatever. She's going to open the door and I'm going to not have my shirt on for no reason. Oh yeah, they had to put the Matthew Broderick beefcake in there. I was like, who is that for exactly? I mean, maybe he was a sex symbol back then, but it's not like he's like cut like Matthew McConaughey or something. He's just kind of like he's a computer nerd with his shirt off. Well, you know, getting into the whole body dysmorphia issues that the nerds later in the movie bring about, he was idealized in every way, even as a nerd. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Although, like, I find that the lack of sexual tension, like the lack of overt, like, oh, he's like, there's no plot line where Matthew Broderick is obsessed with Ali Sheedy and like has a crush on her. There's no, like when she comes in, he doesn't quickly hide himself. Like he's embarrassed by his dirty underwear, but like, it's it's so beautifully sweet and naive in terms of like everything is so sexed up now that these two would have to just have this constant hot sexual attraction and like the big moment in this movie <laughs> is they kiss barely on the cheek they kiss on the cheek a bunch right they get, well they kiss on the lips they kiss on the lips later but but she comes in the room and he doesn't go oh I can't have my shirt on or he's not like hey baby look at me and she's not leering at it. no one is leering at anyone no which is probably idealized you know because realistically speaking teenage boys are just you know balls of hormones but it's it's just so <laughs> nice to see a movie where that that's not even like a subplot like it doesn't get in the way of the rest of the movie we don't care if the two of them get together it's, that's not what this movie is about yeah like if if this were made today there'd be the sexual tension she'd be his equal in everything and he would probably turn out to be dr falcon's real son <laughs> <laughs> and she would look a lot different i'll tell you no. that and joshua would have a robot body yes of course he would <laughs> yeah, she, she would be megan fox basically so so um ta- so i wanted to mention a couple things about about the matthew broderick in his house the take out the garbage you need to take out the garbage scene um, struck me because I realized that um, the entire Justin Long character in Galaxy Quest is just Matthew Broderick <laughs> from War Games, including they play like all the same scenes. It's he he literally is told yeah. to take out the garbage at an important point in the plot of Galaxy Quest. So I hadn't really thought about that, but that is completely just a War Games reference if you watch Galaxy Quest. And Bo the dog saves the world, by the way, by knocking over the garbage can. Bo the dog saved the entire world. That's what I realized in this thing because during that during that simulation was running, no one was there to tell them it's a simulation. No one was there or anything like that. He interrupted because the dog knocked it over and because his parents were stern and made him get off the computer right now and fix the garbage. Uh, he quit the program by turning off the computer and dropping the carrier. It automatically ceases the simulation. So yeah, well, the simulation was still going, but it didn't continue along at the pace because th- that if it had proceeded a pace with him at the computer and he had not gone down there, that would be it. Game over. So both yeah. the dog. Thank you. Game over. World over. Um, I wanted to mention the uh, his parents eating raw corn. It's just one of the most bizarre. What was with the bread with the butter? I asked my wife this because she's from the Midwest. Yeah. And know. What, is that something that anyone on this podcast does where you put butter on the bread and then you roll the corn in? No. I've never seen that before, no. and nor, did, nor did I remember that. That was bizarre. And then the corn is raw, and there's just a, like a wacky, let's do a wacky joke with the yeah. parents. That I remember because my mom was kind of like that in the 80s. That was really weird. Um, and then, and then that moment when they, uh, when he sets up the dialing and he's explaining that he's dialing all the numbers and I thought, yeah, it's a war dialer. Oh, right. From war games. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw, I saw timers used to call that a demon dialer program. 
but now it's just war dialing because because uh, of war games. I had a I had a three hundred baud modem at this at this period, and I did do some war dialing, and the best I ever came up with. I didn't get to the secret government research station, <laughs> nor did nor did I able was I able to proclaim protovision. I have you now. <laughs> Instead, I found like the local hospital's billing system. Woo! <laughs> Free healthcare for everybody. <laughs> that was a fun time when every computer assumed that, oh, well, if you have this number and you know, and you have a piece of equipment that connect, I just assume that you've got authorization to be here. <laughs> so, so many of these things didn't even ask for a password. It was just, oh, here's a menu of everything I know how to do. Thank you. That time is not that long ago because I was in college in the 90s and our college in the 90s at the dawning of the internet had a write permissions on for everyone's TTY in the entire university. <laughs> Which you know, which meant you could send messages to anyone's screen anywhere. You know, like the 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 age of free love on the internet lasted a long time. So yeah, you, if you dialed up in a modem, it would answer and show you the menu. And right up into the nineties, if you're online with the school of thirty thousand people, you can write ASCII snails to their screen to your heart's content. That changed like in a year and a half. And why? Because some kids had to ruin it for everybody. Guilty as charged. <laughs> I, I had a friend who used to be like work for MIT, uh, the MIT police as their like tech security guy, and he 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 used to love the first like month of a brand new semester. We went all of these kids who were like King Kong of their of of their school in terms of oh I can I I can break into the spell checker of my of my teacher's uh, my teacher's laptop, unaware that yeah. Guess what? I've seen every trick you've ever done because most of them were invented here, and I invented some of them. Hope you hope you enjoyed your four days at MIT before we we booted you out for for violations of of the agreement that you signed. Hey, nice story for your mom. So some some technology notes here. Um, he's dialing from Seattle to uh, the Bay Area, and she asks, "Isn't that expensive?" And he says, "There are ways around that." So there's your phone freaking reference. <laughs> you could go to jail for that. She says, "I remember that entire, uh, in- entire conversation verbatim." I was able to quote that. Only if you're Co- yeah, eighteen. Only, you, only if you're eighteen. Connection terminated. How rude. Was another thing I wrote down because I thought that was pretty funny. And then I wrote down here, and I, John, how rude. And and I wrote this down for John. Um, <laughs> He's got one of those monitors that make a beep sound every time it prints a letter on the screen. I, I have that written down. And what I, what I, my question in my notes is, is this where that started? Because it is pervasive Every monitor makes it. Like un- every, every time a word comes on the screen, beep, 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 beep. I love that. Ever since then, I want, a, I want every computer I own to do that, to make some sort of noise to indicate that it's actually working on something. <laughs> No, to indicate that visual text is appearing on the screen because you, yeah, you can see it with your eyes. But yeah. what if you did, if it didn't make a noise, would, would it really be on the screen? Really? <laughs> but this, you know, this, 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 it's. So that's that's an interesting thing to point out because historically, like the 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 three minute mile of movie making has been how do you make text appearing on a screen and or people typing into an any way an interesting scene in a movie it practically can't be in a i think this might be the only movie that ever really pulled it off maybe maybe that and desk set but that was like with mm. teletypes in the 1950s anyway it's <laughs> spencer tracy and Catherine hepburn so automatically if they're operating a computer they, they could be operating a cpm machine and that would still be interesting but yes i have to say like 
if there's an older movie than this that does the beepy text on the screen because it uh in the chat room they mentioned alien does this at the beginning <laughs> it's got that same readout yeah. thing mm-hmm. i mean I, I, I assumed it did predate it but like it is it is saturates this movie and and like and it's okay because like the way they make the the, the computer's interesting in this movie i don't think it's the beeping it's the pacing it's the pacing mm-hmm. of the interaction the fact that there's an ai on the other side of the thing makes it interesting it's like interacting with hal and they have these pregnant pauses before you know variable length pregnant pauses for maximum dramatic <laughs> effect you know when things come back okay we're up to the uh we have the the we have the fat engineer and the urkel engineer <sighs> <laughs> you might want to look for a back door yeah. Was this before or after Revenge of the Nerds? Before. Prototypical nerds. Yeah. The, I, the, the part that stood out to me in that scene is the terrible, terrible program where he says, whenever I design a system, I always put in a simple password. You're a terrible – like, do not let this person write any security-related code. Like, that is <laughs> – but, but, I mean, the, it's funny because a lot of these security problems are still problems, right? There are still back, bad back doors. There are still passwords written down on pieces of paper that people can go see. Yeah, the, the things written down on pieces of paper, like this was the age before good passwords, but so that's why it's Pencil and Joshua, but at least Joshua was mixed-cased, right? But the the culture now surrounding, if you are a computer nerd, no self-respecting computer nerd would ever say, I rec- you know, every program that I write personally, I put in a back door because that's the, like the worst <laughs> thing you could possibly do. And when we find out that there's like back doors on these routers or printers and other things, we think that the people who who wrote the code for them are terrible and the worst programmers ever. But here, I think of I think they're th- this guy. I think they're this guy. It was just like a badge of honor <laughs> now to even know what a back door is. Don't tell them about back doors. Like it was again, it was a naive error before there was but like in the modern era he comes off as a doof but it, but it happens i mean I, I there i don't i don't remember specifics or the last time i heard about this but you you sometimes do hear about an admin who decided to leave in an insurance policy just in case yeah. he does it doesn't case he gets fired and he does not like the conditions under which he was fired oh yeah yeah but we condemn those people now, though, and this like oh, exactly no, and and, and we're, we would we'd be condemning those people too. But these are these are people who are like Matthew Broderick technically should not have been trying to get into that games company, even if it, even if it weren't uh, actually the the secret uh, uh, nuclear missile firing computer. He's ju- he's doing things because he feels as though because he has because this computer is a world in which he can have godlike powers of creation. That means that all morality inside this world he has created is is uh, all sancti- all sancti- all sanctimonious in the eyes of the Lord because he is the Lord. So that's that's something he can cert- that's something that I, I imagine that person actually thinking. Yep, it's okay for me to put a back door in because. The, the after, after this contract is finished, they're going to screw something up. They're going to come back to me, and I can either spend four weeks trying to figure out what they did, or I can simply walk right into the the, the kitty door in the back and actually fix it for them. Yeah, it's just disappointing because he was supposed to be like the mature, competent one, playing off of the screechy, obnoxious, overexcited <laughs> one, and the mature, confident one says, "Calm down, little kid." Now let me tell you, every I time I write a program, door. I do it terribly. But yeah, <laughs> um, yes, Mr. Potato Head. Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> I, another scene that I can speak verbatim. This scene, I think. Can, can can we take a moment to praise the skills of Mr. Eddie Deason? He he is one of those character actors who had that that those five magical years where the Eddie Deason perfume was just in the air in every casting office, saying "Get and <laughs> three times a day or three times a week, someone was saying, "Get me an Eddie Deason type." And but first, check to see if Eddie Deason is available. He he was in 1941. <laughs> he was in Ivan Reitman's first movie. Uh, I want to hold, hold your hand. Uh, every time playing an Eddie Deason character. But if you're 
if you're an 80s filmmaker, that's everything you wanted. And a little marimba, everybody. Yeah, he he is he is of a kind, right? He he is he is what he is. You get he is the kind. He's the he's the prototype. He's the one they made yeah. the mold from. And, and and as as much as we don't like these ugly stereotypes about like nerds about our types of people, unfortunately, uh, we we all know Eddie Deason types. We all know the 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 slovenly unshaven. Uh, I always leave in the back door types. Hey. I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about you. <laughs> we didn't say any names. Exactly. Greg. By the way, backdoor type means something different nowadays. You know, that's the, that's the fourth really good show title we've had so far. I'm glad that I'm glad it's the, fir- the first one that was not suggested by John Sarkusa. Speaking of, speaking of porn, there's a lot of good library porn in this movie. You see, like, the shots of the card catalog and microfilm. Okay, so, so I was going to say... It- this would not be an 80s movie were there not a montage. And in this case, it is a montage of research with card catalogs and microfilm. Woo! Like in a movie about tech, you're like, oh, yeah, that tech wasn't really in the libraries as much. He's in the card catalogs, man. And it's, you know, and he's looking things up in, in, in the newspapers and he, they're zooming in on things that are clearly typewritten onto index cards. Like that's how he finds the information. Yeah. No, it was, it was sad that, you know, as the, the, children of a librarian we had to explain to our children what these things were it's like what is, what are they doing why aren't they on the computer well they had this drawer with cards what is that <laughs> yeah there was there was some there was some excitement to the card catalog as as a kid who experienced it like it, some both something kind of like sacred like like church where because even when computers were available this was different and everything was so quiet and the librarian would teach you how to use the card catalog and all of that is lost on anybody watching this movie in the modern era who never did this because it just seems like some kind of anachronistic montage filled with things i don't understand remember the first time that you discover the reader's guide to periodical literature oh yeah and you realize wait a minute there is this there is this regular monthly series of hardbound books that will tell you to find every piece of timely information ever made and if i simply write this down on the piece of paper a librarian will give me this little magazine or this trade journal that is magic that that was another one of those points of intersection with real life that i absolutely loved about this movie about how sometimes to solve a problem you can't do it in a linear straightforward fashion you really do have to say i'm going to have to learn everything i possibly can about this subject and i will only be able to see the answer once i see the entire world of information around this answer and yeah i i was one of those kids who knew the knew the high school library the 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 public library and even the city library very very well because the first time that you realize that I need this piece of really technical information that I have no idea where to go for, and then four weeks later, you're actually you're opening up an envelope, and here is an actual set of data plans from the patent filing for this thing that you want to learn about, or here is a technical paper written by the person who invented this because you decided you went to the good research library at BU and they found they found this person's PhD dissertation, which he explained everything there was to know about this video system, like. Oh, this is really this is real power. I'm 14 mm. years old and I stride this this land like a colossus. <laughs> so uh, Matthew Broderick uh, becomes an expert on Professor Falcon and discovers that he's dead. He died. He was pretty old. He was 41. 41. Screw you, Matthew Broderick. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that's another that's another joke that I did not get the first time I saw this movie. Like the fact that that's supposed to be a joke because when I was a kid, I I think I thought that was all. 
when we saw it, that's how old my parents were, so they didn't laugh. <laughs> oh, it's funny. It's very funny. And they figure out that his his son uh his son who died is Joshua. And we're in. Shall we play a game? Um the voice synthesis that he turns on so that we have some drama other than the boot boot of the uh, yeah. of the text. And I believe that's the actor who plays Falcon going through like a vocorder or something. I think that's a I think that's cuz it's got an English accent. And it's basically his accent. So I think it actually is the same guy. I don't know that for sure. Sounds like him. There's, there's a lot of affectation to the voice because it's not it's not like Fred where it's like a you know take the the little English sounds and build the words out of them with a couple of special cases. So I, I believe that it is an actor, but it's but it's affected in a way that it sounds like it doesn't. It makes mistakes. It says things in strange ways. It works for dramatic effect, but it's not dramatic in the way that a human would read it. It's dramatic in an alien kind of way, like a sort of halting. Uh, strangely paced things running together with weird pauses where they shouldn't be, and I mean it's probably it's probably just because I saw it when I was younger or whatever. But the voice still works for me. Doesn't sound didn't sound dated. Sounds ominous, interesting, yeah. and alien. Well, people probably would have been familiar with it. Kurt, Kurzweil had a really good voice, uh, uh, text to voice uh, system that was used for uh, uh, that, that that was uh, mostly used for people who couldn't speak properly. And so, but it had that. It was it was it was unique enough that there was actually a radio station uh, locally that had access to that tech, access to that box and was using it for like character voices. And so, yeah, it's I, I would be I'd be shocked if it weren't if it weren't a real actor. But no, I think it's John Wood. I think it's the guy who plays Doctor Falcon because it's even got his English accent. It's a strange. It's like oh, the voice you know because Stephen Hawking is famous for having an American accent for his computer voice because even though he's English. His computer voice has an American accent. This is the reverse, where he flips on the text to speech, and what we get is an English accent that sounds strangely like Doctor Falcon. And I never really noticed that before, but this time it's it's totally him. That's that, and so yeah. it's it's processed, and he's speaking in that stilted, affected. It's a computer voice kind of thing, but it's meant to have us feel like this is his. You know, in the end, since we know that this is his creation, it's meant to sort of reflect him a little bit. And this is where we get all the famous things that everybody remembers. Shall we play a game? Um, and 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 we we keep talking. Um, and uh, there's tab. There's some tab. They're drinking some tab. It's a sign that it's uh, the past. See that? That's that's how we know that they they feel there's no future. They they will drink soda with saccharin in it. They will drink tab. <laughs> I, I was going to say we don't really notice the voice because we meet Joshua first, right? And so it doesn't seem odd that they sound similar. We get uh, we we uh, any fan of the abyss will know that multiple um, what is it multiple inbound. Reentry vehicles. It's Mervs. Mervs. Here's Merv from uh, from the Abyss. But here, uh, Matthew Broderick doesn't know what they are. I don't know, but it's great, right? It's like whatever. I learned from a video game. Ah, uh, Mervs. I learned it from the Abyss. I didn't know how, notice how much ASCII art there was in this movie. Like a lot of the graphics that appear on the screen for like right. the U.S. map. Like it has like upside down V's for the you know for the warhead mm-hmm. splitting, but it's all on character boundaries. You know, I guess I guess uh, some of it is raster graphics, I think, but there's a lot of ASCII art mixed in. Well, at his computer, it's ASCII art. I think the idea there was that how would he, how would they get graphics across his little modem, right? So it's the text art, and then they go to the actual um, at, at NORAD. It's got it's got um, you know the the vector based the you know 
stuff that that they've got on the screen yeah and i think this the joshua scene i think it's the scene when joshua first calls him back that i believe is the first instance of what i would consider it to be like the the theme music for war games when joshua calls him about that start playing that creepy war games music which i can't now that i think of it i can't like play it back in my head but as soon as i hear it i'm like oh that's the war games music that's the dramatic war games music and it runs throughout the rest of the film more or less as kind of a theme but it's, it's strange that it takes that long in the movie for that music to come in um we get take us to defcon 3 so defcon i think is not something anybody knew of before this this is where it comes from and uh, of course any any true war games nerd will know that defcon 5 is the best kind of defcon and defcon 1 is world war 3 and people get that wrong all the time but if you've seen war games you know but anyway they take us to defcon 3 because they're a little worried and they they got the big sign. That, that, can, I, can we just talk about the room? The room that that's in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the DefCon sign. I hope they don't make a sixth DefCon because they only they bought the sign with the five. They're they're individual light boxes. <laughs> they can always expand it. It's the NORAD control room. It's like an it's like the Apollo uh, mission control room at NORAD. Right, but but that is that is a massive set. Yes. That is a huge set that must have been on like the biggest sound stage they could find. And I was shocked watching this movie again at how big and impressive that room is. You would think, well, it's probably, you know, compare, compared to modern movies, surely it's not going to be big. But modern movies always put all the screens and everything in like a small cramped space. And that set where so much of this movie takes place is still impressive to this day as a practical effect. And everything they do with that set with the lights out later and, and the mood and, and how you can have people running around and how much stuff you can shoot on that. You can see they dumped all their money into that set and it was money well spent. And I think it totally holds up, even though it's ridiculous, obviously. But... <laughs> I think it works like the mission control sets in in Apollo 13. But it's so much bigger. It's just huge. I mean, it's like a, a football field practically. And they got all those well, you know, to blow up the world it takes a lot of people. So <laughs> And they got those screens. I guess they must have been front projection. I'm trying to figure out how they even did those because those those are I mean, I'm assuming that's all in camera and if you were in that room, it would those graphics would be on those giant screens. It must have been yeah. a bunch of movie projectors. And then the graphics had that like I said they had that straight like like uh vectory kind of look which is it actually has the I, I assume it's even the same people who built those graphics did the graphics in max headroom a few years later they have the and the uh, maybe they're similar to the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy tv series it's 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 this interesting style of the time to have something that didn't look like they were trying to envision computer output that wasn't just uh you know little dots on a screen that go as they come out like the ascii art <laughs> yeah well, but but that well that that I thought I thought that was perfectly accurate because if you if you're ma- if you're making uh, for the technology at that time if you wanted smooth lines from uh, smooth graphics from point A to point B that could be that could scale up and scale down you couldn't do these big rasters things you really did have to do you really did have to do these vector style stuff and and and, I, and actually and I were in 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 college uh, in college and in high school even I was seeing displays that were just like that. Only, only they're just green phosphor, but yeah, we are now at DefCon two. By the way, I, I just wanted to let everybody know that <laughs> I've said it. Yeah, and and I have to think like all all the graphics that appear uh, appear on that screen, those graphics define aesthetically speaking nuclear Armageddon for me because I see in my <laughs> head the lines coming down, the circles expanding out, the circles expanding out and overlapping, Boom. the repeated lines, Boom. the arcs from over the poles and everything. Like yeah. that is just burned in my brain. It's like when you envision World War Three, I just see the I see the, the vector lines. I see the electron, what's supposed to be the electron beams sweeping over the poles from Russia, the lines coming down and the circles covering the map that I know with a bunch of circles and the same thing going the reverse direction and the subs. And the, the way 
way they move the cameras around on on those screens and showing it, I don't I don't think it's been equaled by any other movie trying to convey. Basically, they're focusing the camera on screens, screens showing visualizations, and now we have such amazing visualizations with these amazing three D graphics, and they show us swooping through a building, and here's where we're going to infiltrate, and blah blah blah. That I find. Like it doesn't read as well as this does. This is so simple, so straightforward, and and so and so effective. It's because it's abstract that it's chilling. Yes, exactly. And it's not like they don't. We're not. It's clear. At least I don't think we're supposed to be impressed by the graphics. We're not like, wow, look at these visualizations. We are saddened and frightened by what the graphics represent. Right, and that scene is chilling where they get the three guys on the line, uh, who are going to be the first ones to blow up, and um. And it, it, I think it's it's a little bit. It's referencing failsafe because it's the same kind of thing in failsafe where they're they're listening and when the phone you know puts out the high pitched tone, it means there was a nuclear blast. And 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 you see those lines come in and you see those circles and then you hear the guys go, oh, "We're still here!" <laughs> and it, but it it is a really, I, I mean, affecting and creepy scene. The pause before they shout. That's where Barry Corbin absolutely earned all of his money. I, I every time I think about individual lines and individual scene performances, they're all Barry Corbin from that part of the movie. Between him being the general who, in a lesser movie, would be excited about nuclear war because this is what he's been training for, would be was now planning it would be playing it more accurately as no, this is the worst case scenario. I don't want this to be happening. And also, right. just the the tension in his voice, which he he is. The he has to be that guy who tells these very junior green people who might be dying in about ten seconds to say, "I'm going to give you some instructions. I'm going to give you the context for those instructions. I'm going to convey to you how important it is that you can that you uh, that you follow these instructions exactly. I'm going to stand by and I'm going to be with you as you do this. But here's the situation we're in, and man, that was just pitch perfect. This is also around the point in the movie where the. Uh... After hanging up, the computer really, really, really wants to talk to Matthew Broderick, so it keeps calling him back. <laughs> and then he gets picked up at Seven Eleven. Boy, kids, just if you if you're a computer hacker, don't go to Seven Eleven. <laughs> That's where they get you. Um, and uh, and and then if, if only he had some rollerblades. Right? <laughs> I know. Just get out of there. Um, and or he could like run, Lola, run would be the other way to go. Um, and uh, and so that what does that leave us? They, they, he gets taken to NORAD. And uh, there, he gets interrogated as a, as if he's going to be a Soviet spy. Well, interrogated like he'd be waterboarded in ten minutes in a modern movie, like <laughs> yeah. like immediately tortured. And the worst they do is they have Dabney Coleman give him a stern talking to, <laughs> and leave him alone in a room with a computer. So so can we talk about Dabney Coleman for a minute? I just wanted to say I I I find this such an odd choice, and maybe it's because thinking of all the other parts that Dabney Coleman, <laughs> you know, sitcom actor in many cases has has played over the years. It's like he's the he's the kind of genius. Well, it turns out he's not the genius. He's like the business guy who's been left to monitor the invention of the genius he, he's the more stable genius he's the i get the feeling that like they were partners they were two scientific partners and he was the more kind of like business-minded socially acceptable and the, the other one was the more eccentric and the eccentric one got pushed out leaving the other to plow forward the, the, there were a lot of like white shirt engineers 
You know, if you if you look at the people working on Apollo, you don't see hippie types by and large. You see people in nice little like short sleeve shirts and ties. McKittrick was that kind of engineer. Where the pocket yeah. the the reason why he has a pocket protector is because yeah he's not wearing his like acid his tie dye t shirt he's wearing an actual like nice shirt that would have been advertised in Esquire. He wants to protect his pocket. Well, you gotta the pens leak. I think Dabney Coleman. It's just it's it's just funny. Um, given I think maybe it's just that he got he got more typecast as he went, but in this movie it was not he's not the character. I mean, he made this right after he made Tootsie, right? I mean, he's not the character I expect to see here in this in this part. He's a different kind of actor to be to be seen here. Well, and at the time, he was not really a sitcom or comedy person either. You know, Tootsie was the the thing that was like, why is Dabney Coleman in this movie? Huh. And you know, well, I don't know, nine to five. All of us, well, all of a sudden, you had nine to five. You had Tootsie, and then he did Buffalo Bill, and then suddenly he was comedy. Yeah, it just I and I don't know who I would I would have. I just I I I just thought it was really interesting. I'm not saying that it's bad. Yeah, that was that was precedes the nine to five and and then and then Tootsie and then he did this. I thought he works as a he works as a stern father figure who you buy as being intelligent. He, I, I felt like he also was could have done more in this movie. He wasn't given what he was given to do. He did well, and I felt I mean he got like second billing I think in the movie, and I guess it's just you know because because of his stature, but it's like. All of the scenes he was in, he was good and he fulfilled his role. But like, no, I think it's looking back on his career with hindsight that it seems more surprising, and I think it's a good performance. But it's funny because I put Dabney Coleman in this different box, and then I see him here, and I'm like, right, Dabney Coleman, because who? It just you know, it's he's he's not he didn't get picked out of the pile of actors that I would expect you'd pick this character out of, and I like it. Well, well, here that this is the time we need to talk about McKittrick's, uh, Dabney Coleman's assistant. There's one scene in this movie that had me laughing out loud, and that I did not remember. That I cannot believe it's even in the movie. Does anyone know what I'm going to be talking about? I won't. I won't spoil it. But I, I, I think we're talking about the same one. Stop! It's a simulation. It's a simulation. No, not that one. Not that one. I'm talking about Dabney Coleman. At one point, his helpful lady helper person assistant, who is inexplicably in many, many more scenes than it seems like she should be, given her vague job description. She's talking to him about some urgent issue that he's got to handle. Whatever. He's going to meet with somebody. He is chewing gum. He takes the gum out of his mouth, okay. hands it to his his helper assistant person, who then a all right a she is now his gum receptacle. She is basically like you are so beneath me that when I'm done chewing my gum, rather than sticking it under the table, I'm going to hand it to you. That's how far beneath me you are in all stations of life. And then she takes it and gleefully puts it into her own mouth and chews it. What is going on there? Like I I, I got. I got okay. I got, I got it. I got a different. I got such a different read from that scene that when you have two people who are working together, that as, as, sort sort of like Leo McGarry and uh, what was what was the name of his assistant in the, in the West Wing, where they've had this working relationship so Nancy, long, right? Right. That he, he would realize that. Well, look, I've got gum in my mouth. I got to get rid of it. I can't. I can't spit it on the floor where it's going to gum people up. So of course he's he's spit it in her hand, and she's going to say, "Okay, free gum." That works if she says, "Gimme." If she says "gimme," like that's what Nancy would do. Oh, they 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 they've got such an effective working relationship; they're beyond words yeah. now. That's all right. All. So why does it go? Why does she put it in her mouth? Why free gum? Come on, free gum. Do you realize in the eighties, <laughs> gum costs like nine dollars a piece? Weighs not, want not. She's she's keeping it moist for him. John, the weird that is not the weird scene. We are talking about the gum, right? The weird scene. <laughs> the the weird uh, yeah. The weird scene 
the that struck me is when they lock they lock um, Matthew Broderick in the medical ward because it doesn't have a computer before and leave him alone before <laughs> they take him away because when you've got a Russian spy you lock him up and leave him alone and then you leave a guard there but he's going to put the moves on a nurse and this is the what I wrote down in my notes is sexual harassment <laughs> to the rescue. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's an off-screen rape because it just it leads up. He keeps getting more and more aggressive, and then we just leave the scene, and we just assume that the poor woman was raped because Mr. White Gloves. It's more of humans being unreliable because a computer wouldn't put the moves on a nurse. Obviously, you haven't seen a movie called Electric Dreams, son. He keeps getting closer <laughs> and closer. Wow, that takes me back. And and she is like, "Hey, it looks like you're going to quite a tennis player." And she, her reaction is like, "Oh, stop it! Oh, he he!" Like she tries to like all the women in this movie feel like they have to like it, the gender roles. Like I don't know if they're trying to make it seem like this woman was. Oh, I just I, I can't I can't watch the scenes. I don't understand how we thought this was acceptable. Like because it's not played for dramatic effect. It's, the, the point of that scene is that he is distracted. He could have been distracted by a laser spot on the wall. It doesn't matter. And the, the blonde secretary <laughs> is the spot on the wall. Like it doesn't matter to the plot. Never, never use cats as your secret service agents. <laughs> yeah, they, they are less reliable. But like just those scenes, they're just they're just so painful that these like the the women in in NORAD basically fulfill the roles of like service animals. <laughs> like they're not they're, they're not in positions of they're all chewing other people's gum. I mean, it's it's of its time, and it is less it is less offensive than many other movies that are of its time. But like because these are such incidental things. But it's like even in the incidentals, it's like ooh, do you have to? There was. Okay, so we watched we watched uh, Ghostbusters a couple days after after we watched this movie, um, and uh, you know Peter Venkman is putting the moves on on Dana Barrett and all of that, and 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 he's meant to be kind of a creep in a way. Yeah, but but Dana, you know, tells him off more. I mean, she falls for him later because he's well, right. So so uh, comparing that scene to this scene, where where it's, I mean, it is just meant to be a distraction, but it's it's so bad on all the levels that it, it just it was like really kind of gross and i and again i was like boy thank goodness that guy is out there sexually harassing that nurse so that matthew broderick can <laughs> escape into the vents yay well well thank goodness everything thank goodness everything in this movie makes noise because then he's able to record the code on a tape re- audio tape recorder if the things if everything didn't make noise that wouldn't have worked the good uh thing though is that this is also the norad uh headquarters that uh, norad headquarters that has the um you know regular but regular school bus tours <laughs> that in the newscast like when he does the simulation and bo knocks over the garbage can and then the next day it's on the news like norad wouldn't tell the news that they almost had this thing like the whole point of norad but then you're like later when you see bus tours you're like oh well i guess this norad is like come on in see our secret lair <laughs> this right. is transparent norad uh, but before we, if I could rewind one bit, one second though, there was a, there was a, a line from when, when I thought that you're talking about McKittrick's assistant, I thought you're talking about the Nebuchadnezzar one, who uh, the, the first one who like like five minutes after the rest of Nord realizes that oh this isn't this isn't really a a, a a nuclear nuclear first strike from Russia, it's just a simulation. He's that Nebuchadnezzar guy who keeps running in with this long strip of green bar printouts. Don't stop! It's just a simulation. It's not a war. You can say Jewish. It's okay. <laughs> I, 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 I will say nebbish. I, again, I, 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 I don't see uh, religion. I feel that we're all children of the same God who was the father of Jesus Christ. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a, there, there's, a, there's a beautiful line in, in, in this movie that I, I think is so instructive in good storytelling, in which if you know anything about – if you know even nothing – 
about how government installations work, you figure that how is it possible for anyone just to dial in on an outside line and get access to the computer that launches nuclear missiles? And there's this, uh, and all that has to has to happen is for this one nebishly guy to say one line, which is the phone company screwed up. And oh, phone company, we all hate the phone company too. We are our whatever curiosity we had is now completely satisfied. And I love the fact that in an earlier draft, or someone who isn't as good a screenwriter, they would have come up with this big, complicated. Oh well, they they pulled out. There was a maintenance cycle that was happening. They pulled one bank, and this a shot with this other technician accidentally hooked up this thing to the other thing no 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 need to do that one line handles it there, there was an interview there was a, a yeah. podcast interview with uh, the writers of lost that inter- that uh, explained this term that i absolutely love they referred to it as hanging a lantern on it where if there's something that needs to happen for the plot but it's technically absolutely impossible they're talking about some some scene in lost in which a radio signal had to be coming from underwater that they were triangulating it was happening underwater and the in the writers room for lost they actually spent just hours and hours coming up with a technical explanation for why this radio signal was coming out there before they just collectively slapped themselves in the face and just simply typed i i know that's impossible but i'm telling you that's what's happening line of dialogue done move on beautiful yeah it's that's yeah. why the enterprise has a transporter instead of always taking the shuttlecraft down it's just like yeah shortcut do it also also yeah. if you run out of money and you don't feel like you can't get any more aliens in and you really want to be able to just rent some standard western costumes you can simply say oh the transporter is malfunctioning and Worf and the rest of the main cast are stuck in the wild wild west also by the way here's a tip if you are um somewhere in colorado and you don't have any money, and you need to make a phone call, find a pull tab <laughs> from a soda can. We had to explain that to my children, too. Yeah. Oh. And you can, you can do Man. some phone hacking things. So this is one of the, another place in this movie where they're making reference to the you know, phone hacking exploits of people in the 70s. Um, and uh, he calls Ali Sheedy, and, 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 and my note is... Um, Hey, airplane security was a lot less lax then, and there were no databases. Because she literally like calls up the airline and says, "Can you get, leave a plane ticket for my friend?" Yeah. Cut to <laughs> he's landed at the airport because they're not they don't they they don't know he's there. They can't triangulate in the database. He doesn't need any ID. She can put it in. Amazing, just. Do you feel like like there's so many things that nobody understands under the age of 25 in this movie? Shouldn't they just like sort of remaster this so it's in black and white and like that super super fast walking around? <laughs> well, he's in a he's in a phone booth. He's in a phone booth. Who knows what a phone booth is? I remember seeing this as a kid and being excited by the ability to get free calls because that was an exciting thing when I was a kid to be able to use a payphone without paying. But I remember when I, even when I was young watching this movie, I said. Those phone handset things are so hard to unscrew. There's no way by bang like that was the unrealistic thing for me. Not touching the little thing with the with the soda pop top. It was the fact that he was able to unscrew it because I had tried that many times and they're really hard to unscrew. <laughs> Before the movie, I'd rather because you know why wouldn't you? Maybe sure. See, well, also, also, they had a much simpler solution, which again, any kid of that time would know. If you just sort of check the check the the coin return, there is a good chance there's going to be a dime in there. He checked it. He checked the move. He checked the coin return. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, but yes, that's the move. That's what you do when you're a kid and you have no money. You check all the coin returns, whether you're going to make a call or not. <laughs> exactly. That is that is that used. To, oh God, I don't want to into a collective nostalgia trip. But it's like I just remember. I, I still remember there was a soda machine next to the fire station that was broken in such a way that it would dis it would discharge a quarter like after it was due or something, and it was always good at for at least three quarters. Finest memory of my life: free sodas. At the Shakey's <laughs> near my house, somebody drilled a hole in a quarter and run a fishing line through it. And the Space War arcade game there had horizontal slots rather than vertical. And so he just ran the quarter up and down a couple of hundred times and we played all weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I tried that so many times with video games machines and it never worked. I always lost the thing. The string broke. Because you see it, you see, you see it in a Warner Brothers cartoon. It should work. It's the horizontal slot. It's the vertical slot that it's falls sideways. Time for me to tell you about one more sponsor. It's ifixit.com. They are the world's free online repair manual for everything. You've seen these guys. They're the ones who do the take-aparts of basically any tech product you can think of when they come out. They are the brave ones. They get in there, they take it apart, and see what makes it tick. But they're more than just that. iFixit offers free step-by-step repair guides with foolproof instructions to fix all your coolest stuff. It's what I used to install an SSD in my uh, old iMac, and now it is so much faster now that it's running on an SSD instead of a spin disk. If you've shattered your iPhone screen, if you need to repair your game console, iFixit has got you covered. There are thousands of repair guides for electronics, your smartphone, tablet, computer, game console. They'll even hook you up with the parts you need to fix it, and everything they sell is tested and guaranteed. And best of all, iFixit designs and manufactures the most trusted repair tools for electronics, including the Pro Tech Toolkit. ProTech Toolkit has 70 different tools in it to assist you with any mod, malfunction, or misfortune that comes you, your way. It's got a 54-bit driver kit with all of those crazy different screws like Phillips. You know, that's normal, right? But then there's the Torx, and there's Torx Security, there's Triangle, there's TriWing, and there's Pentalobe, the one that Apple does that's got five sides, and it drives iFixit crazy, so they built their own bits so you can take apart Apple stuff yourself. Anyway, the toolkit is full of this stuff, great for hobbyists, great for DIY fixers. It's got a one-year warranty. So check out iFixit.com. They're way more than just those attention-getting take-apart guides on the day one of a new product. Go to ifixit.com slash incomparable, get all the free repair guides you need, and when you find a perfect part or tool, use the coupon code incomparable at checkout, and what will that get you? $10 off any order of $50 or more. That's ifixit.com slash incomparable, and thank you so much to ifixit for supporting all of 5x5 and for supporting the incomparable. Another anachronistic thing in this movie, of course, is all the people smoking, but it was kind of hilarious, like, in a, in a way that they were almost aware of how this movie would be viewed in the future, that they have, fine, people smoking cigarettes indoors, not a big deal. Fine, the, the big general guy has a giant cigar. Of course, the general guy has a cigar. Yes, he's allowed to, to smoke it inside. But then later in the movie, when he pulls out the chewing tobacco, it's like, okay, now, now you're just piling it on. Now you're just showing off, like, I'm done with the cigar, I'm done with the cigarette, give me my bag of chew. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, although that was very that was a very character thing too. It's like a, like he's like, all right, I guess the, the world's gonna end. I'm gonna get the chew in here, and we're gonna do this thing. Pick the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. I was just gonna say that 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 is that is one of that is one of my clear memories of shots from this from this movie when when Whopper starts locking like even the regular personnel out, and McKittrick is like just leaning over the keyboard like butt 
dragging, just a, a cigarette dangling from his lo- from his mustache, <laughs> blank expression mm. on his face. How, how do people act without cigarettes now? There's so many actors who learned how to act. So I've got to have this in my hand. I've got to know how to puff on this thing. you got to have something to play with, yeah. <laughs> now it's just base, baseball bats. They just carry around baseball bats. Where the general calls the Alaska base to scramble two F-16s, and then they immediately cut to stock footage of two <laughs> F-15s. I was very upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you're going to get stock footage, you have the script. You're not flying these planes. Get stock footage of F-16s. They existed. Because young, young Syracuse had snapped together Ravel models <laughs> hanging from the ceiling of his bedroom. <laughs> God damn it, he knew what those looked like. <laughs> Maybe I did, okay. <laughs> oh, so you, you didn't have the patience to put together the Millennium Falcon monogram model, did you? <laughs> I didn't have enough money for that. There you go. Paper route, John. Paper route. Some of us had gumption. Some of us didn't. So we, we have reached, we, we, at long last, at long last, we have reached uh, Professor Falcon's uh, island where where pterodactyls fly in the air and that's still awesome that real flying thing that steers with the head i want that now where is that now it really is my my son my son saw that and he was like whoa that's what is this what happened is this the wrong movie is this the future <laughs> what's going on what did i hit my head what's happened here that worked great as like a non sequitur. Like you're in this movie about computers and they show a pterodactyl and they linger on it. And you're like, that's a pterodactyl. I know what a pterodactyl looks like. And that's a pterodactyl. And then we, and then we meet Professor Falcon and it turns out that he is obsessed with dinosaurs and is convinced that humans are going to be extinct just like dinosaurs. Yeah. He is a big downer. <laughs> don't go to, don't go to <laughs> Professor Falcon's cabin. So someday you may have a child and watch him die. <laughs> it's just not a fun time. Do you get the impression that Professor Falcon is actually like Jeff Goldblum's character's dad from Jurassic Park? <laughs> cause he goes, cause na- nature, nature will, 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 will start all over again. Pro- pro- probably, probably with the bees this time. Now he's much more distinguished than Jeff Goldblum. I love whatever whoever this actor is, and I don't even know if I've seen him in anything. Else. He does such a good job as Falcon to being kind of eccentric, and he's got the accent, and he's even when he's being crazy and fatalistic, you know, he's totally totally believable in this role. But always always like distinguished, and you kind of like I accept his craziness. I, I accept that he is that this is the way he is, and it's okay for him to be that way. Yeah, I don't think I've seen this actor in anything else, but he is, he is, I was noticing that watching this, that he's really great in this. I mean, he's a downer and all of that, but he's a, uh, he, you know, Falcon is this mysterious figure that's happening, who we know, and then we think he's dead and all of that. And then when we finally meet him, and it kind of, it pays off. He he pays off, absolutely. And he gets the one good comedy line in this movie, I thought, where he meets up with his old partner and says, I see your wife still picks your ties. <laughs> which i didn't remember that line at all for, for a kid but like it, he does it in kind of the dry british way is like that that's his disarming way to meet an old friend he hadn't seen in many years yeah he's he's uh he's done a lot more work in in britain and originated a lot of roles in tom stoppard plays in the 70s so you know if this were a movie in england that would be the name it'd be like oh my god john wood whereas over here i, I, I think that may, might be the most famous thing he's done over here yeah, and this I, I um again this is really a, a downer and and uh he says, Well we're close to a target, so we'll be spared the horrors of survival. We'll just be vaporized and it won't be a problem. Which is really nice to say to the two, you know, teenagers who were falling in love, who are 
visiting you on your little island that you've got is well that that was a meme in my childhood that the whole idea that you wanted to be close to uh, an important target and i'm sure it didn't start with this movie but it was like it was i remember discussing it with my parents that we didn't have to worry about anything because we were so close to new york city it would be vaporized <laughs> well mm-hmm. i remember so 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 watching this one of the things that struck me was that the true there's a line of dialogue that I felt was the true Cold War view, the true, like, this is what it was like living through the Cold Cold War, which is when, um, I think, uh, is it Ali Sheedy says, I wish I didn't know, like everyone else, we all just died. It's, it's Matthew Broderick, I wish I didn't know. Oh, that's Matthew Broderick, right. I just wish I didn't know, like everyone else. I, I wish I didn't know, we'd all just die tomorrow, right? It's like, that's that's it, how fatalistic this is, is, yeah. we you know, I, I don't want the knowledge that the world's going to end. I just want it to end and it'll be over and I won't have to worry about it. Wow. Yeah. That was real, folks. <laughs> because, like, he kind of, you know, made this happen, so. <laughs> yeah, also, <laughs> it is, yeah. It is his part. We're at De- DEFCON 1 now, people. We are at... DEFCON 1. This is where uh, Barry Corbin puts in his chewing tobacco because it's serious business. <laughs> I, I know there's a rule saying that you can't spit on the floor in NORAD, but screw it, we're all going to die anyway. Rules are for lesser men. And then the, another, you know, NORAD's got tours as well, and also Falcon can take his helicopter into NORAD. Like, I would imagine a helicopter flying towards NORAD would be something that they would then <laughs> to say. Well, I also... I, well, I, I also, I also would have, I also would have imagined that at some point he would have phoned ahead and said, "Hi, yeah, I, you know the." I'm in the helicopter. Don't shoot it down. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. say I'm, I'm, he- I'm heading in, and given that I'm probably the only person, one of only two people here, the only person who can actually legally buy liquor, who can, <laughs> who can fix this problem, perhaps you should let me land. They had that like the obligatory car, because that's something they could do in the '80s. They could have car chases. They were good at that. They knew how to have stunt drivers drive really fast. And like, it's just a race against time. It's not even a car chase. It's just a well. Hey, the guy, the guy crashes through the gate. You know, they gotta roll the jeep. They just gotta. Yeah, yeah. That's their. That's what they're made to do. And it almost doesn't fit in in this movie where it doesn't have many other scenes like that. But it's it's for the purpose of the dramatic effect of getting through the comically huge door. Yeah, it pays off the the door closing burt, burt, earlier in the movie where it's <laughs> yeah earlier in the movie they show that same huge door closing and people are squeezing through at the last second. It's like wait your turn, like it's not worth your life to get out to get a snack. I need more gum. We pancaked another employee. <laughs> yeah, well, anymore where that came from, we're we're we got we got the we got the Ronald Reagan defense budget. We can always get more army guys. John didn't uh, come into work today. Well, half of him did. <laughs> we're only we're only docking you half for half of you for being late. There's a uh, a scene they cut out where Han Solo asks three PO where Luke is. <laughs> Before the door closes. Walk us through how you're feeling right now. Because it's getting cold. <laughs> well, well. Let's bring out your headliner. Good one, Greg. Good one. <laughs> I'll splice that into the Empire Strikes Back episode. <laughs> I would I would have gone with the scene where Chewbacca yells after the door closes or something of that effect. Yeah, and right. There you go. I know what your favorite Star Wars movie is, so you're forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else do we have in here? We have you're you're listening to a machine. Don't act like one. Right. That don't be don't be like the machine. You got the whopper sound. 
the Whopper yeah. sound is very good. You should put that in a loop in your house just for mood music. <laughs> <laughs> and they like the when they do the cameras, they you know slide the camera around the little right. blinking light areas. Like, I mean, what can yeah. you really show? You want to show that the Whopper is this ominous presence type thing, and so you've got the noise and you've got the camera panning over the big Whopper set piece. Isn't there a Saturday Night Live sketch where they cut to the Whopper and it's a giant hamburger? <laughs> I believe that's a real, a real joke. Yeah, yeah. If this was a modern movie, there would be Burger King product placement guaranteed. I think there would have been many seasons of Saturday Night Live where that would have been a good eleven fifty-two p.m. joke. Yeah. Yep, yep. But isn't it? But it, uh, one thing, one thing that called attention to me that it really looked like nineteen fifty-eight, nineteen sixty-five, like cabinet design. Didn't it? With because it had those really smooth corners to it. It was painted in that sort of institutional green. Even the computers around it looked a lot newer than Whopper. Yeah, it had. Well, it, it looked. It looked. I think the other ones were either based on real designs or were real designs of actual things. Whereas Whopper was wholly constructed by Hollywood, so right. it kind of makes sense that when they constructed it, they don't know what real computers look like. They just want to make something that re- something that reads as it's got blinky lights. It's big. I did. I did think that in addition to the blinking lights, they had that one section of like a matrix LED that was flipping through sine waves. I thought that was pretty boss. Oh yeah, counting counting mm. down the till the end of the world. <laughs> Just to let you know, if you if you were looking at the uh, hardware, it would say, "By the way, still counting down to the end of the world." You see, you got the engineers that have to feel like pretty minus by that, saying, "Why did we bother putting these lights in if no one is ever going to look at them?" That's just yeah. that just that just devalues me as a worker. It really negatively impacts my sense of empowerment in this organization. There's a nice. Uh, I, I like the fake out here, where uh, where it turns out that everybody's safe and it's all it's all okay, and then and then it's like, <laughs> yay, we're we win, everything's good. Back slaps. Tell the president we're okay, and then there's the oh no. We're not safe, Mr. McKittrick. It is my it's my considered opinion that your your missile program sucks. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> is this the first movie where they did the thing where you guess a password and it tells you each time you got a single digit right? Because <laughs> that is that is definitely a meme. Like they that that went yeah. forward from 1983 and continues to this day, and it makes so little sense on any level. To, like like no like common sense, not technical. Just think of common sense. How many choices are there for each position? How many times? If it's going to tell you yeah. when you get any of those positions right, like, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make any. I mean, it makes for a good dramatic, dramatic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's like, right. It, it makes for good drama, and I can't remember a movie before this that did it. So this may be where that came from. And again, as a kid, it didn't bother me in the least because I was dumb. But because <laughs> you know. well, also it was an exciting movie, and that's the point at which it's working for you, so you don't really think about that twice, right? It's a more exciting countdown than an actual countdown, right? Yeah, and even this time, like it didn't bother you know because I do get caught up. Like this, this amazing set that they built, I really think this is the star of the movie production wise. This amazing set that they've built, it's like the end of a rock show where like they do go to the climax. And they, they use all the fancy lights on the set. You know, like in the beginning, they just show you, we can do this kind of lighting scenario and we can do that one. But like in the big climax, they do all the lights. So in this big climax, the computer, as they do in movies, causes everything to blow up with sparks because that's what computers do. We all know that. Uh, but that means basically the lights are off on the set. And once the lights are off on the set, now it's basically time for a laser light show. Because then the screens are even more dramatic and reflecting the light on the people's faces, which, again, real screens don't do. But I think these projection screens probably actually did project these huge lights back on their faces. And it is a laser light show of Joshua learning with the, with the you know, it, they're RGB screens. It's basically like you've got white 
100% red, 100% green, 100% blue. Uh, you know, and these flashing lights, everything again, everything in camera, it's like the culmination of a rock show in terms of effects, and I, I think it still works. Also, it's such such a it's, if 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 there was a more effective way for them for the filmmaker to communicate that the humans have absolutely no influence on what happens next. Either either everybody dies in about five minutes, or it's been fixed. We don't know yet. Uh, and and on a, on a more personal note. Ever since that movie, I've been hoping for a screensaver, especially with HDTVs, that would do nothing but run through all of those war games Whopper scenarios. Except like Iceland, <laughs> I've got the list in front of me where it's just Hong Kong variant, Cedo decapitating, Cuban provocation, inadvertent, Atlantic heavy, Cuban paramilitary, Nicaraguan preemptive, Pacific territorial, Burmese theater wide, church detour. It's like I want to see, and I want to see the the maps go, and I want to see inbounds, I want to see the. I say winner, none, 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 none. Yeah, I would just I would buy a TV exactly for that. With all those cool names of the of the different strategies too, which I always like to like to see. Warsaw Pact, Iceland Incident, English Escalation, Zaire Screen, Middle East yeah. Heavy, Mexican Takeover, Chad Alert, <laughs> Saudi Maneuver, African Territorial, Ethiopian Calamity, Canadian parentheses obstructed. <laughs> I, I, earlier in that is my favorite guy in the entire movie when they you know they figure out to make it play tic-tac-toe and the guy from the back who gets a speaking part in the movie yeah. leans put the, X in, the center square. X in the center square like <laughs> no as if he's got the key he's got the key to the tic-tac-toe strategy he's like no i know this game trust me put x in the center square somebody somebody got you someone got screen actors guild health coverage based on that line <laughs> I thought he was thinking that was like the override code, right? Just put the X in the center square. That'll end it, right? No, I, I always read that as a kid. Even as a kid, I said, that guy's stupid. <laughs> that guy's no stupid. <laughs> that, guy's that guy's really dumb. Speaking part, though, you got to be, yeah. you got to love it. Uh, and like uh, the, the part where like, how can I get it to play itself? Put number of players zero. That's totally how a program would work. Yeah. Yep. Falcon knows. He wrote it. It's fine. Um... What else? A strange game? The only winning move is not to play? I noticed that this time that the words on the screen say a strange game, but the audio says strange. And I only remember the audio, I guess, because I wasn't reading the screen at that point. I was listening to what Joshua would say. But yeah, the, it's a different reading. The, also interesting, that it's, this, it's the same voice. That, that Even when I saw it for the first time, that I stumbled over that a little bit. I didn't dislike that, but it was like, oh, okay. Well, it's a commercial product. You can buy it from that magazine he was reading. And... and <laughs> Same, same synergistic, yeah. Same, 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 uh, same page in the DigiKeys catalog for the right to IC component. Sure, it's just it's the same reason why our announcer on the incomparable is the same announcer you hear in Fitter Happier by Radiohead. Let's say, <laughs> you know, it's just it's available. It's a commercially available product. Yeah, it gets he gets around that robot guy. And this movie can't resist one of the greatest '80s end of movie memes, which is. When the movie ends and in a celebratory, happy manner, someone has to throw papers in there. <laughs> and even though, even though in this movie it doesn't make any sense in context because there really is not a lot of paperwork going on in the war room, somebody throws papers. If you wait past the credits, Matthew Broderick is in the shower and tells you to go home. <laughs> You're still here? <laughs> oh, well, let, 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 let's also, in, in terms of like great, like tiny, tiny little cameos in that in that room... I love the shot of the the sergeant who all you see is like her mouth and the her little like headset mic. Three, two, one, impact. Impact. <laughs> her lips are the star of that scene. Are you kidding? That's I, exactly. 
It's like yeah, yeah. And, so, and somewhere there's got to be like it's some some office like at least through 1986 there was a pile of videotapes and nothing but auditions of close-ups of actresses' lips <laughs> wearing boom microphones, and they picked the best one out of 700 because that was just good casting. <laughs> And her booming voice. I don't even know if that's her voice, but like the voice amplified with reverb and that huge room. Like, yeah, totally, totally works there. And like the like many 80s movies, there's no denouement to this movie. Like it ends with the guy throwing papers in the air and then they roll credits. Yeah. Like it, it like they they don't want to tell you what happened to David. Did he ever get arrested? Did he go on to like it, a modern movie? I feel like would have to show you. What happened to him? Does he go back home to his parents? Is he happy? Did we see a scene with him with Ali Sheed? Does he does he become an apprentice? To, does he become an apprentice to, to Falcon? And does he eat raw corn? It, it would be no. It, it would be it would be uh, it would be fade fade to black fade up six months later in which there's like, they were meeting in a coffee shop saying well is this too bad that that the that joshua program had to be completely deleted yes but it was for the safety of the country and then like he picks he pulls out a phone in which joshua call mom tell her i'm going to be 15 minutes late all right professor matthew broderick and then he winks at the camera exactly <laughs> he might as he might as well yeah, but it, it was it's abrupt but like as a kid that's where the movie ended and i was yeah. perfectly happy yeah, with exactly. it and as an adult seeing modern movies i'm like oh i guess the credits come now you're like I, I guess you're right there is nothing after that and what do you like i guess even in star wars they gave the guys medals like there was a there was a wind down you know it doesn't end with the death star blowing up and then the credits roll but uh, it's not like sneaker yeah right it's like i think the best analog is in sneakers you know where there has to be that scene in which the government finally catches up with the the these these white hat hackers who have actually saved you know the country from this thing, and that has to be the the medal ceremony in which look, but James Earl Jones has to say, "Now we can't let any of this go to get out." And so, if you uh, what, what what do we get out of it? Like, well, what do you want? <laughs> and uh, because yeah. all I want is that sexy agent's phone number, <laughs> uh, River Phoenix, uh, that that character. Talk, we talk about sex, and and her reaction is, "Wait a minute! You can have the government will give you anything you want, and all you want is my phone number." Suspiciously, yes. Four one five eight one two two one two eight. Did anybody ever call that? I'm sure a lot of people called it. It was a real number, but I never called it. No, I'm sure I just told you to uh, advertisements for yes. movies for the same. Story. Hello, sad person. <laughs> Remember to drink your Ovaltine. Welcome to Movie Line. And you you say that the the movie just ends right there, but no, we get the we get the melancholy harmonica to yeah. make us think <laughs> about what we learned. That's right. You should think about what you've learned. And slow pull out, right? Slow slow pull back. Well, like I I think the the gold standard of the of the scene that was not in this movie would be, you know, the the arc of the covenant is in the crate being driven in slowly into the matte painting. Uh, yeah. because that's that it has the same effect as the sad harmonica music, but it is a separate scene because the, what they want you to know is like you know, yeah, evil still exists in the form of the giant faceless government, and incompetence still exists, and Indy will need to continue to fight the good fight, and you know, so on and so forth. The world didn't end today. <laughs> what about tomorrow, people? Heed our lesson well. Let us not have died in vain. The monsters were already on Maple Street. I, I like the um, I like that kind of melancholy tone that because I feel that way on the um, you get that when when they're on the island and you see the pterodactyl, it's the same thing. It's like this weird tonal shift, but I kind of like it because it's kind of like where are we now? And we're kind of it's kind of sad, and and it is like we're at, at the end of the world. Um, 
I, I kind of like that. And it, but it is strange at the end. It's not like duh, 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 we win, <laughs> yay! Yeah. Everybody go out of the movie being really happy. We didn't blow up the world. Instead, it's like think about it with this sad harmonica. <laughs> yeah, like this, this is a kind of like a peacenik '80s movie, and I don't know if the if they make fewer movies like this these days. But every time I try to think of a movie involving war or military. It's just always so, like, especially a movie that has a happy ending and a hero who overcomes odds. It's just always so sort of aggressive and militaristic and jingoistic where it's like, even like Independence Day, which is kind of like, yay, humanity, we defeated the aliens. Like, everything's got to be the military is awesome and we win by killing the other guys and killing the other guys is good. And when we are victory, we go home and have a beer and at a barbecue and like... That is not the tone of this movie. Like, these movies are all wusses. They would all get beat up by today's square-jawed, jarhead, militaristic... Even the movies that are supposed to be about, like, the futility of war, like a movie that I haven't seen that I will gladly comment on in my grand tradition. That movie, A Lone Survivor, which is supposed to be, you know, a, a tale of companionship and heroism and everything like that, but, you know... The, the the sort of underlying messages, you know, why were they there? And it's isn't it terrible that we're over in Afghanistan or wherever they were? Like this these movies were unabashedly like war is bad we are hollywood we're telling you that you when they launch nuclear missiles at us we should not launch them back it, it, the whole thing is pointless you know it's a vibe that i don't i don't, have, don't see in movie if you put this movie out today i think people would be like they would declare it anti-american and yet it's funny because in hindsight uh in hindsight this movie's premise is obvious right I mean, everybody agrees. Even Ronald Reagan said mutually assured destruction is a terrible thing, and this is why we need to um, reduce the number of nuclear weapons and make it. I mean, right? I mean, it, this. this yeah, that's because there was a superpower on the other side. Now that there's no superpower, it's like, oh, well, once, once nuclear annihilation is off the table, yeah, kill all the people we don't like. Mm, no. Well, but, the, but this is what I'm saying is, is that this, this movie's premise that was political is. It is which I mean, how political can hey, let's not blow up the planet, but still was political. Um, now is like, well, yeah, I mean, it's validated. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, that was a bad idea. Well, but back then, like, even though we said like everyone agreed, we didn't agree enough to elect Democrats too much. Like, we still wanted <laughs> yeah. the crazy cowboy to be in charge because because fear was enough of a factor. It's like we all kind of agree that you know nuclear Armageddon is bad, but let's keep electing the crazy guy who seems the most likely to push the big red button because that makes us the, the people who are scared feel safer. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Is it was it wasn't it was a political statement back then. It's just now we look at it and we say, we say, yep, that, that was really stupid. Let's not all blow each other up. But you know, but that that is this is in the grand tradition of of Hollywood movies making. You know, I mean, as a kid who grew up on Star Trek, it's like that, right? It's like the Star Trek episode where it's like, yeah, Star Trek is super wussy. Where where it was yeah. like the black half black half white guy <laughs> and the half white half black guy. Why can't they just get along? Don't they yeah. understand that those colors are the same? They're just reversed, right? I mean, it's in that tradition of the you know liberal Hollywood movie saying uh, we all need to get along in peace and love and stop nuclear weapons and all that. And yeah, it seems obvious, and yet it was also kind of controversial. So this movie. Uh, has the wherewithal to ignoring the women that it considers interesting to make <laughs> like there's no there's no cartoonish militaristic character in the movie and it seems like we can't have a movie anywhere where right they, whether even if they're the bad guy yes everyone is a human like as or maybe it was you made this point everyone doesn't want the war to happen 
he's like there is no obviously there's no guy right even barry corbin i mean he's like the guy he's he's like uh, leo call the silos stand the missiles down yeah he doesn't want to he doesn't want to end the world either right yeah and and so there is no there is no cartoonish uh there is no proxy for there's no proxy for our fear that the military will run amok and destroy the world because they're you know gonna ride a bomb down like a cowboy you know what i mean like they're there's none of that. There's no everyone in this movie. It's not cynical at all. Yeah, and every every person in the there there are no idiots in this movie. Everybody is reacting to the events. The guy with the white gloves, maybe. But well, okay, but that's the white gloves. You got either that guy's got a skin condition or he's got he's got a problem. Uh, yeah. It's everybody is reacting exactly the way that they should be reacting, given the information that they have at the time that they're acting, and so. At the time when they all need to basically get together because they all recognize the severity of the problem, that's exactly what they do. And I'm not sure that they, that if this movie were made today, it would be that different. Uh, if, if, I mean, if it were this kind of a movie, you, you can always make a bad movie about any issue. But I do think that that was the, the, the core thing that made War Games a good movie was the realization that sometimes the enemy is not us versus them sometimes it really is that here is the evolution of a disaster and people trying to evade it and also i and also i would say be be fair i mean in 1982 1983 if you're going to make a movie about nuclear war you probably don't have the effects budget to actually have the war happen you have to do it so that they avert the missiles being launched <laughs> you can blow up some models yeah they all they all they all, all, all they could afford was a couple of like uh, a couple of like uh, fire extinguishers like in the opening sequence so they could just sort of fire off these fire extinguishers at the bottom of a tube to make it look like these rocket engines were about to fire up or get getting ready to launch yeah, they got they got a lot of mileage out of that one rocket model that they kept showing, but you know, like, well, they they put all they put all the money into that giant war room, and I think it was money well spent. But like, exactly. if you tried to make the movie where it's a war, you end up with Red Dawn, which I think is another good example of a movie with a similar message. And it's like, well, we can't actually do nuclear war, and that actually wouldn't be that interesting. But we can get people with guns on horses, and so yeah. let's go with that. By the way, according to uh, uh, an old Wired magazine story. Um, the one of the co-writers of this movie was a family friend of Ronald Reagan, and they and they uh, screened it the weekend it opened for Ronald Reagan. Crazy, had no idea. Yeah, it's the the modern equivalent I think is they tend for this type of movie is they want the the thing that is a threat to seem to be outside of us, and the only way they give uh, responsibility to humans is if it's like, oh, science gone awry, they were experimenting with biological warfare, and this thing got all... So zombie movies, plague movies, those type of things. It's not like we are choosing to go to war. It's like there is an existential threat to humanity that came to be, and it's like nobody's fault, and how did we deal with a World War Z or, you know, outbreak 28 days later, whatever, like, where it's not there is a political decision that made us get into the scenario. It's like, well, we're in the scenario and we'll do what we can to get out of it. That, I think that's as close as they come again, you know, because the absence of the Soviet union yeah. and, and, you know, us being the big superpower, we have to find something else to be a threat to our existence besides like, I guess, Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, and the apolitical, yeah, the apolitical nature of this, of this story is nobody really wanted the world to end. Right. And, and so by having the soldiers not be villains and having it be that that Barry Corbin doesn't you know is relieved. Well, except for that one hitting on the secretary, he's a villain. But. Except for that guy, oh, white glove guy. That guy was bad. Taking it on the chin, white glove guy in the beret. Oh, you got to be yeah, feeling yeah. the burn right now, sir. If you're still with us, yeah. If you're still alive, yeah. Anyway, I mean, it, it is. I think that is interesting. Yes, the computers are the real enemy here, folks. 
That's the message. <laughs> well, well, we we all, look. We we all work with computers long enough to know that yes, the computer is usually in any given workday the real enemy. Well, to bring it back around to the beginning, isn't the inhumanity of the computer the the enemy? Removing the human beings from the firing scenario and the what saves it is Joshua. Maybe not making a moral decision, but making a a human one. Well, I think clearly one of the lessons here is that uh, that removing people from the process uh, is is dangerous. That's definitely one of the messages here is that people people need to be involved to not blindly follow orders. I mean, that's that's what saves the world is not rote execution of commands. Even the general does not follow orders and says, I got to get some confirmation here, right? He doesn't yeah. just push the buttons gleefully. Plus he, he smokes inside. He, he's got the human element. Plus, yeah, well, at that point, sure. That that, cer- that certainly shows like the, the, the how a process is put together. When you look back at it, everything those two control operators had to do at the start in order to get to the point where they had to, where they could turn their keys – the entire process is set up to make it more difficult, to make it to, to bias the system towards not launching as opposed to launching. Where here's every point at if these are not done in the right order and exactly correctly, missile does not launch. That part of the country gets annihilated in a nuclear war. In the real world, recently, didn't they? The... Except for the part where they said if you cut power to NORAD, all the missiles launch. So that was a bad system. <laughs> That's not fail safe. Where they, where they they locked out everything. Well, bet they got they, okay. They they got uh, they got UPSs. Come on, they they probably sent a guy to <laughs> Office Max. You know, get one of them sixty dollar. The whole idea was that they would interpret it as the as the as the NORAD being hit, and they would carry out their last order, which was now locked in with the incredibly ill advised lockout changes button. <laughs> yeah, that is that is bad. That is bad. Didn't in the real world they recently release that that some, you know, thirty forty percent of codes over the missile buttons were set to all zeros? Yeah, they're all zeros, and that was a policy decision. That was that was where they thought it might be too hard to launch them, so they needed to make it easier. So that <laughs> they had that those codes set into all of them. They should just put the computers in charge. Yeah. yeah. Well, the good the good news is that if they got locked down in uh, NORAD, they could just uh, dig out that Stargate that they got down there and yeah. set that one up and. Well, they, they don't lean on it too much in this movie, but Ludditism, if that's the word, uh, fear of technology, that mm. is evergreen. And they, to their credit, they do not make that a big theme of this movie and dwell on it. But so many movies before it and after are just obsessed with the idea that you got to have a human in there and humans are always the best and computers are inexplicably evil. And it's like, unless you're going to have a computer that actually has an AI, yeah, that is scary and evil. But if it's just a machine, it's, you know, it's just a tool and you know, demonization. Let's all just take our... our uh, what do you call it? The our weaving spindles and throw them into fire in the middle of the town square and light them up because we don't like the devil <laughs> machines. Yeah, they knit. They knit for us. That is demonic. If I'd known, I would have become a watchmaker. Do Do we have any uh, any other thoughts about watch about watchmaking <laughs> yeah. about war games before we go? Good flick. Oh, just just that the the only the 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 only the only major unanswered question that I still have is. Man, Matthew Broderick could afford a bitchin' computer setup. Yeah, his parents must have had a lot of money. Yeah, that was like he must have had Ferris Bueller money, or he or he understood that oh, credit card transaction computers are not as secure <laughs> as they possibly should be. Yeah. Although that may be. Although I've, I, I, again, not to get into a nostalgia trip, it's it's possible. I learned as a, as a teenager that if you write a letter to a computer company and the, in the guise of an actual teenager being. I'll be damned. Actually, honest, saying hi. I'm 13 years old. I have I have an interest in your product. I can't possibly afford one. Can you possibly just send me one? 
sometimes that actually worked. I had I had a couple of really good modems because I simply wrote a very fancifully written letter that was factually correct. So perhaps he just like wrote a letter to MSI saying, I have this idea that if I just write some machine code that simply dials numbers in sequence, I could make get to all kinds of mischief. I would love for you to enable this behavior by sending me a free $10,000 computer. Yeah, although I guess MSI didn't pay for product placement because they had the big sticker over it. Mm, true. The, the bumper sticker or whatever they had. I think it's covering up the word MSI over over the, the model number on his computer. Hmm. Shame. I I enjoyed watching this movie and I I enjoyed it. It, it, it as a we picked it apart, but it, it's it's a fun it's a fun movie to watch. I enjoyed it. And and there's no embarrassing parts that like I mean there are parts that age, but there's no part of it where you're like oh I can't believe I've ever liked this or oh this is <laughs> so terrible. It, it it holds up as well as you can imagine any movie from that era holding up in terms of it's still exciting. The pacing is still good. The dialogue there is no incredibly embarrassing dialogue. Some of it is witty. Some of it is interesting. There are hidden meanings that you might not have gotten when you were a kid. If you haven't seen this movie in years, I recommend giving it another watch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean both both of our kids were just this is awesome. And they wanted to watch it again the next day. And then the day after that, so went, all right, that's a good sign. The description of Matthew Broderick, uh, you know, intelligent, but underachieving bored in school that makes him the perfect Soviet recruit uh, now would directly lead him into anonymous or the NSA or the NSA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make a choice or, or do both. <laughs> <laughs> Zing. Philby. Yeah. All right, I think we are we have reached the end. We have played our last game of tic tac toe. <laughs> to what conclusion? I won. <laughs> Only because I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, that's it. You should you should you should have listened to that dumpy guy with a one line. He had the right strategy to begin <laughs> with. Did we listen? No, we made fun of him. Yeah, X in the center square. Always always go for Paul Lynn. Exactly. That's <laughs> X in the center square. That's the yeah. that's the that's the story. Also, he'll have the he'll have the saucy rejoinder. Tony Fields Brazier. <laughs> no, no. It's it's the Warsaw double aggression. Oh my. All right, I'd like to thank my guests for this lovely conversation about a movie from uh 1983, a movie that is not yet old enough for old movie club, but is is not exactly contemporary. After all, it's only 30 years old. Yeah, that's it. It's not. It's practically. You know. It's. It's prob- not even probably on DVD yet. It's so new fresh. releases. Exactly. It's in the new release shelf at the video store that closed five years ago. <laughs> it's. It's only on the verge of having its own children. It's all yeah. right. Yeah. It's okay. It's at least. It's, it's at time. least eight years away from falling into the public domain. Exactly. Yeah. There's time. There's time for all of that. So I'd like to thank my guests for discussing it. Greg Noss, thank you for reliving the '80s with <laughs> Anytime, us. Anytime, Jason. I had a future then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, get out that old modem. Do some word dialing. You'll be back in uh, back in business before you know it. That's uh, I I enjoyed BBSs when I could read faster than the characters could appear. That that was a key. Yeah, you know his modem picks up speed at various <laughs> points in an unrealistic way. I think uh, it's slow at reading pace, and then it's like, well, now it we need uses to draw the same dramatic config guys. file that Joshua does during the pregnant pauses. Yes, that's right. Well, it's anything for drama. <laughs> David Lohr, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having This was a lot of fun. Andy Anatko, thank you. I think USA is going to kick ass in the 84 Olympics. <laughs> All the way, LA, USA. Yep, I'm with you there. One and, moment in time. And John Syracuse, 
Um, I think that Real Genius is funnier than this movie, but I, <laughs> I still like this movie a lot. What do you think? I think life moves pretty fast, Jason. If you can stop and look around once in a while, you might miss it. <laughs> Mr. Potato <laughs> Head. Mr. Potato <laughs> Head. <sighs> we don't need roads. I'm telling you, Ferris Bueller, he's got a computer up there. He's... <laughs> all coming together i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna become famous by posting one of those uh theory grand unified theories like the pixar theory it's all gonna be about dr westfall's kid it's all gonna be matthew broderick matthew broderick is playing the same part in every movie ever so that means andy's did you see the the andy's aunt is roseanne (laughs) (laughs) oh god i i I would hate to think that that's true did you see i I saw a pixar (laughs) theory today that jesse's original owner is andy's mom yeah, but the hats yeah, are different. Yeah, the yeah. hats are different. Yep. Yeah, I agree. It was it was very much the hey, I'm going to blow your mind, and then the bio was like, "This was by a crazy guy who thinks all the movies are, <laughs> are connected." But go <laughs> that guy. Now, the crazy, the, the crazy all movie connected theory. I like that one because they admit up front, look, this is a crazy theory, and it's probably not true. But let's play the fun game. Can we make a theory that seems like these movies are connected? It seemed like it was self aware. But the uh, the Jesse's mom theory was like I can't tell two red hats are different, and that was not good. Yeah, yeah, I can't see colors of red, but still, I, I, even <laughs> I knew it was crazy. It was a shape; it wasn't the color. It was a different color, but you can you can toss off the color to age. But they're differently shaped hats. Differently shaped hats. All right, well, that's it. We're going to shut off uh, the computer here, which is going to fortunately um, avert a nuclear war for another. <laughs> Day or so don't worry it, it'll it'll just keep skyping you back and skyping you back and skyping yeah. you back sorry Bo the dog just knocked over my trash can it's still recording the podcast jason no <laughs> elapsed elapsed show time <laughs> just a little a little clock that keeps going day four hour 12 minute 13 well joshua if you're out there don't call me i'll call you when and someone needs to come out and say uh, this wasn't the actual podcast. It's a simulation! <laughs> Stop so it! Until it's the, a simulation! <laughs> until the next time, I'd like to remind everybody out there to put the X in the center square. The Skype server's screwed up! If you want more of The Incomparable, check out theincomparable.com. Not only do we have the Total Party Kill D&D podcast, but we've also got a new podcast called TV, where we're going to do our flashcasts about TV shows. Go to theincomparable.com and click on TV or search on iTunes for T-E-E-V-E-E.